like, sign me up. I'm ready to do something stupid. <laughs> and um, I was thinking that we were going to create something. Oh, we're going to hike across the Rocky Mountains in the middle of winter. Or we're going to sure. run across the U.S. We're just going to come up with something stupid and design it. And it wasn't until I got on a phone, a video call with the fourth member of the team, Chris Smith, who Chris and I have been running mates for 15, 16 years. And right. then I realized, like, Taco gave up his name, too. And we're on the same call together. Like, hey, we're on this team to do something. And then Brian and Jim introduced, like, have you ever heard of the Talisker Whiskey Limit Challenge? Like, What's that? You know, Talisker Whiskey sounds interesting. Uh, well, we're going to row in a rowboat across the Atlantic Ocean. And I was like, whoa. <laughs> <laughs> the Black Rifle Podcast starts now. Yeah. Yeah. I can't get over that. Look at that. Yeah, he's gnarly. Mm -hmm. He's like, score? You score him? yeah, four uh, forty-eight. He's he's a uh, well-fed animal. Sure. Yeah. I got mad. I got mad one hunting season because I missed every fucking elk. <laughs> Do you mean you missed? And I uh, three fucking missed three. Bad, oh, shooting or mm -hmm. just bad timing? Just got they spooked. No, just I. I was like, uh, archery hunting is so weird. It's so weird. You know, my first year, I shot my first elk at 93 yards with my bow. Well, I didn't know better. Right. So right. I didn't know. I mean, I was shooting foam at 100, 100 plus, whatever. So it's a 93-yard shot, 60-pound bow. He pinwheeled and died in like five, like literally less than five minutes in the same spot that I shot him. It'll never happen again. That, well, no, I, I don't know. Yeah. I was like, oh, this shit's easy. Why yeah. are you guys like, oh, oh, so I was like, this is stupid. What? Like, you guys are talking about how hard this stuff yeah. is. Like, this is easy, man. Totally um, had no idea because it was the second elk that I killed was in Northern California later, like less than a month later. Same thing. 73 yards, one arrow. He died 15 yards away from where I shot him. I'm like, you guys what, keep complaining this, about yeah. this. What is this thing? Like, oh my gosh, it's so hard. And I was, I, I, and then my next year, horrible. Yeah. Like, beginner's missed. luck is, is done. We're done with beginner's we're, luck. We're done. Now. And now you're going to pay. So, and it's, it's very much the pendulum, right? So I got the full spectrum of hunting in the first 20, you know, the first two years from archery, which was the first year, beginner's luck, second year, just, I'm going to kick you in the fucking face and make you think that you're a complete idiot. So I got that one, which is, you know, very, very humbling experience. And then three and four have been like, oh, okay, I get it now. You got to grind your, you got to grind it out. Mm -hmm. You got to grind it out. So. Cause I think you were just getting into archery when mm -hmm. we first met, when yeah, we shot yeah. the tack. That was yeah. like basically your first year, my first year, second year. Yeah. That was, that was the first year I met. John, maybe the second year. So I, we were both starting at the same time. And same. I want to talk about stumbling into a total gem, <laughs> right? Like <laughs> raise your game like this. Like you, you walk in and it's like, I, I tell everybody like Duds is, is like the Nolan Ryan of baseball mm -hmm. for me for archery, right? right? And then to just, he walks into your high school yeah. and says, hey, you know what? Let me, let me teach you a few pitches. It's like, <laughs> are you kidding? Yeah. That's who hey. he was for me. I'm, I'm assuming Same. you, yeah, yeah. Yeah, he was the guy that, hey, I'll come out and teach you or I'll spend some time with you. And then I went out and hunted with him multiple times. You know, we went to Canada. We hunted up there. Mm -hmm. We hunted in Colorado. One, he's a, 
he's a lot of fun to hunt with. And two, he's really well accomplished hunter. So you can you can learn so many different so many different things just in a matter of we'll call it um, two days worth of stocking. Mm-hmm. You know, reading wind and approaches and all the things that might take you ten years of hunting to 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 pick up. So you can really increase your your education curve, which that's one thing I appreciate about him. Like he's a fucking phenomenal human. Yeah, oh, he's great. He's a good dude, great dude, and he he just I think he just generally wants to help people mm-hmm. and and like be a great ambassador for his community. Yeah. You know, whether it's hunting, conservation, or archery, like in the combination of both where those two worlds collide, like it's, he just truly gives, mm-hmm. gives to people. So. Do you shoot your bow quite a bit still? I oh, do. Yeah. I do. He you built, guys got he built snow me out the there bow. in Colorado? It's fucking cold. We All got, right. um, I think we got a week of temperatures not getting above single digits. Oh, cool. This, this week. So, yeah. but, uh, yeah, I shoot it quite a bit. Not as much as I did last year, this year, but, right. um, Again, I, I kind of gave up a lot of my hunting season this year, um, yeah. reprioritizing things. But uh, I got to get back on the bow more. Well, yeah, because you took the last year. When did you when did you row across the Atlantic? I think we left December fourteenth, twenty twenty three. Okay, we would be just getting to the finish line. Yeah, like this week, right? Last year. Okay. Yeah. Gotcha. So, and then how long did that take you? Thirty three and a half days. 33 and a half days. 33 days, 17 hours, and a handful of minutes. I think. You're, you're going to have to like unpack this entire thing. So we talked about it earlier where you get an email. That's the entire thing starts basically from this email. Mm-hmm. And then let's let's just walk me through what happened there. <laughs> <laughs> it, is, it is pretty wild, right? Yeah. Um, I got an email from a guy, Brian, yeah. um, mutual friend of ours, mm-hmm. which we had no idea until Later. three years afterwards. Yeah. But um saying, hey, man, I got your name from Taco, um, and I would love to have a call with you, see if you're interested in doing something really crazy. Okay, cool. Get on a video call with him and and his buddy. Talking. I'm like, okay, yeah, I'm interested. I'm interested. Um, Hey, well, why don't we meet down in Denver? It's like halfway between you and I. I live in Larkspur. I'm like, okay, so we met and um, kicked it off. He's a great dude, man. Just Super a lot fun. of fun, thinks thinks a lot of the same things. He's interested in the outdoors and yeah. pushing his limits. And it's like, hey, I'd love to do this, man. I'd love to create a friendship and get to know yeah. more. Like, sign me up. I'm ready to do something stupid. <laughs> and um, I was thinking that we were going to create something. Oh, we're going to hike across the Rocky Mountains in the middle of winter. Or we're going to sure. run across the U.S. We're just going to come up with something stupid and design it. And it wasn't until I got on a phone, a video call with the fourth member of the team, Chris Smith, who – Chris and I have been running mates for 15, 16 years. And then I realized like Taco gave up his name too. And we're on the same call together. Like, Hey, we're on this team to do something. And then Brian and Jim introduced like, have you ever heard of the Talisker whiskey Atlantic challenge? I'm like, what's that? You know, Talisker whiskey sounds interesting. Uh, Well, we're going to row in a rowboat across the Atlantic ocean. And I was like, Whoa, <laughs> <laughs> I'm not a great swimmer. Um, the ocean, You're a marine. The ocean. You're yeah, not a I, great swimmer. <laughs> uh, the ocean rowing. What do we? I, I don't. I've rowed on a Concept Two before. You know, I've done a kayak and some adventure races and eco challenges, Primal Quest and stuff. But like nothing. We're gonna row in a rowboat. Is that people even do that? He's like, no, no. It's part of a race. Like, I'm like, all right, fuck it, let's do it figure this out 
and the funny thing is, is um, Chris's wife and my wife, neither of them wanted us to do this. They're like, this is stupid. This is absurd. Why? No. Why, 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 why do they think it's stupid? Uh, do they think it's dangerous? Yeah, dangerous. Okay. Out of the realm of our experience base. Like you're always trying to do something something more, learn something more, push your margins. You're taking it too far this time. Right. You're going to keep taking it so far until somebody gets hurt. And it was like, Hey, and we listened, you know, it's like, Hey, we're going to fucking do this. Right. So we did it. So that's how the team started. And then um, we trained for two and a half years. Two yeah. And a half years. So when you're training for something like this, I mean, and explain to me the route first, because I think that's important okay. because you're, you're, you're departing from where Florida no, we, we departed from La Gomera, the Canary Islands, Spain. Okay, there we go. Spain yeah. off of North Africa, whatever, yeah. right? Funny enough that the island that Christopher Columbus started, we didn't realize all the connections, but you learn it after you get involved right. in the race, where Christopher Columbus started his first voyage across the Atlantic. Right. So we rode from La Gomera, the Canary Islands, to Antigua mm-hmm. in the Caribbean. Right. 3,000 miles. 3,000 miles. miles or something like that, nautical miles. And there's nothing like once, once you pull out, that's it. You're, you're on water for 33 days and hours and minutes. Totally self-supported. So no crew, no safety boats, no, like you have everything you need for however long it's going to take you to, to complete your journey. Like you have it with you. So how much, what, well, there's lots of different things here that are colliding in my brain at once. Yeah. Just two and a half years of training. And one, do you already have a boat design? Is this like a boat that everybody kind of knows which one to buy? Or do you guys have to design your own boat? Kind of come up with the, the specs. Is it like a boxcar or not a, uh, you know, a soapbox derby? Yeah, soapbox derby where everybody gets the same boat. Or is it like, no, you have to design, manufacture, come up with the whole thing? All on your own. Yeah, some different the combination of both, okay. right? Um, so we went race class, and there's one boat builder that's pretty much dominates this race. This race has been around for like 14 years or mm-hmm. something. Um, so we went with that boat builder, um, Rannick, and there was a standard four person, a three station rowing boat, mm-hmm. 25 and a half feet long, five feet wide. It's kind of like your classic, it's called the R45. Mm-hmm. So we picked that boat. Um, since we set up really lofty goal of trying to win the race, we decided to buy a brand new boat with all of the upgrades, carbon fiber upgrades. Yeah, all this yeah. So it was, ended up being really expensive. And, um, yeah, what's a boat like that cost? I, th- I think totally outfitting the boat itself with all the electronics and everything like that was just under 200,000. Oh, okay. Yeah. It's an expensive um, robot. Yeah, it's not cheap. You right. know, and we, we had the luxury of some sponsorship too, right? Like Black Rifle was yeah. super generous, um, super generous. Um, Rogue Fitness, XIT Ranch. Yeah. And then our relationship with Concept2. So, um, right. you know, with Concept2 outfitting us with custom-built, modified, designed oars. I mean, that's, that's actually ocean rowing oars. Uh-huh. I didn't realize how yeah. expensive they are. But, um, and then, uh, yeah, so anyways, I forget where we're at. But uh, we did two and a half years of training. A lot of it on a concept two rower, a lot of it just right. doing dude shit. Yeah. Um, building teamwork, resilience, working on the mental game, physical fitness, obviously. But and then we got our boat delivered to Florida, Amelia Island. And so we would travel to Amelia Island every six to ten weeks. 
and for a week and we would do team training on our right. boat in Florida. Yeah. What do you do? What's your team training? You're just going through your rotation, trying to get your timing right. Like, like obviously I understand that from a boat perspective, but you haven't been in a boat like this before. Have any of you guys prior to this point? So you're planning on winning. Yeah, you're... totally green. <laughs> <laughs> Sounds like your classic, typical, yeah. like alpha, stereotypical yeah. male yeah. military guy, right? Yeah. yeah, totally. So all of you guys, this is your first time. Yeah. So you get in this boat. When you get in the boat, what what's going through your head at this point, like the first like few hours of being this? Like, yeah. it uh, It's like, oh, shit. We didn't know what we didn't know. We got a whole, whole, whole right. lot more to learn. Um, but you, just like anything, man, just like your training, it, you just take over. Okay, step yeah. one, step two. Let's just build it. Let's just get familiar and figure shit out. We're gonna we're gonna stumble our way through it. No problem. Getting out on the boat on the water. I mean, it was all brand new from trying to drive the boat on the trailer and back it up. Yeah, launching it and right. then trying to get it down the boat ramp to the end of the you know the pier to all learning, little steering it, rowing strokes. Um, and then we hired this guy, Angus Collins, who, um, well, we were talking about Nolan Ryan, right? And John yeah. Dudley, John Dudley, the Nolan Ryan of the archery community, bow hunting community. Well, uh, Angus Collins is the Nolan Ryan of the ocean rowing community. Right. Right. He's set the world record across the Atlantic. He's rowed the Atlantic a couple times. He's won the race. He's got the world record had the world record for the Indian ocean rode the Pacific, like the guys, the ocean rowing dude guru. Right. So we asked him if he would, um, come to Florida and do a training session with us to teach us. And we had such a good time with Angus for a week in Florida. We asked him if he would consider running our campaign nuts to bolts. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, and he said, yes. So we, we contracted him. That's awesome. He was our campaign manager, you know, couldn't call him a team captain because that was Brian's job, but ultimately he was like the general manager of, mm-hmm. of the team. We learned so much from Angus, um, so much. He was invaluable. You know, we, uh, we wouldn't have had the success that we had if it wasn't for Angus. I mean, even solving problems with a sat phone while we're underway. It's like yeah. Angus, we broke our auto tiller. Uh, like Angus, the, the waves are 30, 35 feet, like we got no auto tiller. What do we do? You know, how do we fix this? How do we fix our water pump? Like, I don't know what an auto tiller is. What is that? Auto tiller is, uh, it's this mechanical device that sits on your rudder. Mm-hmm. It's slave to your GPS mm-hmm. so that you can plug it in like a, a direction. Oh, okay. It'll gotcha. Hold, it'll hold, it'll hold your, your line. direction for okay. a period of time. Right. You know, you have to correct it for set and drift and, yeah. and all that shit, but, uh, it helps steer you. Okay. Gotcha. Yeah. So. yeah. But yeah, it wasn't for Angus. And then we just, we logged, I think we logged close to 300 hours of rowing time in Florida on our boat day and night, you know, just practicing everything, your nutrition, your work rest cycles, your body hygiene, maintenance, boat maintenance, hygiene, boat systems, navigation, I mean, communications, safety, you know, emergency drills. So what, what are you eating? I mean, like, obviously you've got a ton of training, but then weight is a consideration is everything, you know, you guys weigh, what's your combined body weight between the, the, the crew that was on the boat? Yeah. I think we were like 850 pounds combined body weight, 860 pounds. Jim was the biggest. So then you have obviously your caloric intake that you have to map out over the course of 
a month. Mm-hmm. And then how are you mapping that out? Because you, everything that you put in, you obviously you're expending a huge amount of caloric, you know, output every day. What are you putting back in? And then how are you carrying that? Because there's got to be water weight. Are you doing dehydrated? Like, mm-hmm. like explain to me your food circumstance. Yeah, what's cool is the race has been around long enough and there's been a lot of people, largely European, right? Like, so yeah. there's some expertise and some experience. And part of the race guidelines dictate how much food minimum requirement you need to take. Oh, okay. So if I remember right, what they said was you need to have 60 calories per kilogram of body weight per day, something like that, mm-hmm. right? And so we figured everybody had a basic caloric minimum. And then you had to take 55 days worth of food with you as the minimum for oh, the race. Okay. Right. And of that, a certain percentage had to be allocated for emergency ration use only. Right. And a certain percentage of the overall had to be wet rations okay. and dry rations. So we had these things figured out. Um, but then like you're saying, so we wanted to win. So it wasn't just going by those. Now there's room for optimization of those minimum requirements. Right. And it's like, well, what dehydrated meals pack the most calories for the lightest gram of weight, right? Which ones work with our digestion? Which ones provide the best macronutrient and micronutrient densities for what you as an individual or what I as an individual need based off of what is our anticipated work output physically? So we are trying to balance all these numbers you know, um, working with a nutritionist, coming up with what fuels you as a as an athlete under these circumstances the best. And we ate largely dehydrated meals. Really? Yeah. Um, we had some wet rations, which were phenomenal, yeah. um, which you would dip into those every now and then. But they don't pack a calorie punch like the dehydrated ones do. Right. But there's a different sort of psychological replenishment that happens when you're eating that. Yeah. Um, the forward cabin, Chris and Jim used their jet boil and they heated their meals up. Um, I'm a little bit more stubborn. So Brian and I, we didn't use any jet boils. <laughs> just put some water Why? in a dehydrated meal. Really? Just put, put your tin in the sun and <laughs> let the sun heat it up and eat your shit. But, uh, okay. you know, you're, we're trying to, you know, so is there like a pounds. team riff in there? Was there like the forward and you no. and Brian, like you guys were like. Just different styles. Just different styles. Yeah. 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 Just different styles. And it was all good. But ounces, pounds, pounds, pain, yeah, you know, dude. pain's time. So um, we just shaved every bit we could off of our boat weight, which is funny enough, side story, right? Like um, Jim doesn't make it to the post office in time before the race to mail his shit home that we had because we were in Gamera before the race started uh-huh. for like two weeks. Well, Jim being Jim just doesn't make it to the post office in time to mail his shit home. So we take, I don't know, 20 pounds of fucking no. luggage. <laughs> he stores it in the no in the cabin. Yeah, we don't find out until we're like halfway through. Like, what is this? Oh, that's that's my that's the stuff I need in Gamera. Why didn't you mail it? Well, oh, I didn't get to the post office in time. <laughs> oh, but just man. classic stuff. Just it, it brings back memories of military stuff, right? Yeah. Like just like goofy, goofy shit that happens. But so when you're when you're in a rotation as far as your your you're, you're in the boat, you have sleeping quarters. How many, how many guys can sleep at once? Uh, the cabins are super tight. Like, yeah. If, look at this table. Yeah. That's about the size of the, the stern cabin. And then maybe times and a half this for the forward cabin, 
was where you had all your gear, your equipment, and then you would go in to sleep or shelter from weather. Mm-hmm. Jim is like six foot four, two forty. Uh, Brian and I are between five ten and six foot between the two of us, and roughly two hundred pounds. Right. So um, Jim was in the forward cabin with Chris. Brian and I were in the stern cabin. Not enough space to fully lay out flat, right? right? Um, but uh, that was our cabin. You could fit. We had two people in there, very rarely, because it just wasn't comfortable. Yeah, you know, you're basically naked laying on top of each other in a sweat box. It's like yeah. 20 degrees um, full of mold. But um, our work rotation was such that you never really had to be in your cabin with somebody. Right. So we were always rowing nonstop two people on the oars, two hour shifts on, two hour shifts off. That was okay. our standard rotation. Right. And we were staggered started. Okay. So I would get on the oars and you would be rowing. I would row for two hours. Well, one hour into that, you would be getting off, and then the other person would be getting on. Got it. They would row for two hours, but one hour into their shift, I would be getting off, and then my cabin mate would be getting on. Right. So two hours on, two hours off for 33 days. So you it was our standard rotation. You would only sleep for two-hour blocks then, or actually less than uh, that, yeah, if yeah, you slept. 40 minutes to an hour. Yeah. Yeah. So you would – like just sleeping, you got to be like – extremely sleep deprived because of the rotation alone or do you just learn how to like yeah whatever it's 45 minutes to an hour worth of sleep and i'm going to get x amount of sleep per day and then you're going to compensate with more throughout the day basically because you're on or off yeah how does that work i mean you know like your body our bodies are amazing right Mm -hmm. they adapt now they might not be as efficient or as as optimized but our bodies adapt to stresses and the sleep cycle was definitely a stress because, you know, you get off your rotation, your body's already amped up from rowing. So you got to you kind of settle down there. You've got team responsibilities. You got your individual boat responsibilities. You got boat maintenance. You got individual maintenance. You got eating. That all is crammed into your two hours of off time. And then when you wake back up from your off time, you have your prep. So you got to shake your cobwebs yeah. out. You got to get <clears throat> loosened up because you're stiffer than shit. You've right. got to get organized. You have to get your gear prepared to be on shift for two hours. So, you know, you were getting about 40 minutes to an hour if you were really efficient of sleep. Got it. It was very rare that I would get more than like 50 minutes of like, no shit, I fell asleep. Okay. And where you're at on your REM cycles and your sleep cycles, who, who knows at that point, right? Um, which is funny enough, at, as we got into the row and we were really, really fatigued, we would be waking up after like five minutes of sleep, 10 minutes of sleep, starting to get ready for shift. And then the guy that was out there was like, what are you doing, Tosh? Or what are you doing, Brian? What are you doing, Chris? I'm getting ready for shift. I got to go. He's like, no, 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 no. You've only been out for five minutes. You've got, <laughs> you've got a whole other hour. He's yeah, yeah. like, oh, wow. Right. You know, you're, but you, you get adapted to it. Um, where it really got hard is when we did this cycle called three up. So Angus would say, Hey mates, we, we need you to go hard for 24 hours, 36 hours. We want to get you in position for weather. You know, you're chasing first place. Like you're right here. You're right there. We want to row three up. What that means is, is there's a rower on all three rowing stations. And so your work rest cycle is two hours of rowing 40 minutes off. Got it. And we would row for 24 hours or 36 hours like that. And then that's where it really, but man, that's what, that's where you, you know, you become a real man. (laughs) (laughs) That's when you become a real man. Who can endure that? You know, and and then also having like faculty to recognize 
boat performance is decreasing, even though our work we're putting into it is more like the, the bang for the buck is not worth it. So let's stop that cycle. So why, right? how is that possible? If you're putting in more work, but your performance is decreasing is because you're just not putting the, the power output to performance isn't working or like, why, why would that decrease? Is it just yeah. because it's, you're not putting as much energy into it because you're just too tired. So that three, could be a, could be a function of it, right? Uh, like just your physiological capacity is decreasing to right. the point where you can't overcome the, the boat, yeah. you know, physics of the boat right. the conditions or the conditions get worse. Yeah. Right. So you have the greatest of intent to have three up, but the conditions are such that that third rowing station is Doesn't efficient matter. and yeah. you're banging oars together or it doesn't uh, matter or, right. or the weather got so good that having that third person's not adding any extra because you're already, the boat's already maximized with the whole speed, yeah, you know, buoyancy and everything like that. Like adding adding more muscle isn't going to make the boat go any faster because we're up against its physical limitations. Mm-hmm. So let's go back to two on, two off, right? right. Instead of just burning burning yeah. energy. Well, there's a lot of a lot of th- thought involved to it. It's not just a meathead just get there and row. Oh no, I can't even imagine yeah. because I mean I'm thinking about it from the, the the context of the things that that are demanding there's a lot of things that are demanding like you got tight quarters you've got extended period of time on the open ocean like the the psychologically like once you're in the open ocean do you have any issues with that or did you leading up to it were you like ah man i'm this is going to be kind of scary yeah i think that's where it's like hey i'm working with with three Navy SEALs, right? I'm working with some of the finest the military have, right? right? So it's three Navy SEALs and myself and the physical piece and all of our experiences. It's like, hey, we got all that solved, you know? Yeah. And, and not even that you've solved it, but that if you're faced, we're going to work through it. Mm-hmm. So the hardest part about the whole row was the psychological, the team dynamics. And and we had great team dynamics, but man, 33 and a half days of, I mean, it just, shit just yeah. unfolds. And how well do you deal with things that unfold? And right. how well do you deal with individual dynamics? And that was the hardest part of the race, really. Um, and we did great. We, yeah. did, we did really, really well. Not as well as we supposed to. We should have. We had it in us to do better. But, you know, I think it was, it was a function of the psychological stuff. Really? That just... If we, if people ask me all the time, like, hey, if you go back, what would you do different? We would have spent more time in the psychological space mm. because we all think we've got it, but we don't. What, what were the know? big challenges that you can think of from a psychological perspective? Like, what were the things that were preventive obstacles? Yeah. Well, first, the good things were was we all really close. Yeah. Really great. All professional. We all have the backgrounds where mm-hmm. it was like, hey. You know, you could get in each other's face and say, hey, fuck you, or you're a pussy, or, or sure. all that stuff, but it's never taken personal, mm-hmm. you know, and you can drive and drive and, and do all that. So we had all that in spades, uh, and it was really, really good, the problem solving, the communication, right? But the funny thing is, is as fatigue starts to add up, mental fatigue, physical fatigue, like diff- you, you start to pronounce different personality traits, or you start to pronounce different things that maybe have been suppressed, right? Like yeah. You can be on your best behavior, but if I if I subject you to some physical discomfort for a while, you can only hold that up for so long until that starts to break down and then it gives opportunity for something else to come out. Mm-hmm. And then, and this is in a good healthy sense too, right? So then we all have to try to figure out how to adapt and evolve and understand what this new thing's coming out that's never come out before. 
Right. I've never seen this out of Evan. Like we've never been in a situation nearly to replicate this and his defenses have gotten down and all of his strengths have been used to be the best that he could be. And now this little thing just started to come out. Mm-hmm. And Evan's trying to figure out what that little thing is, let alone the other three people, right? And imagine that's happening for all four of us. Right. So that's just really what what happens, and you're trying to work through all those things. Um, and it's actually beautiful. It really is. Like I'm fascinated about leadership stuff mm-hmm. and, and human beings and what make people tick. So um, that's just where I dork out. So it was really cool. But one of the one of the big things is just all around goal setting. And I'm a weirdo, man. I'm super weird. And, um, you know, we had an auto tiller failure. We got into some massive weather and the auto tiller wasn't designed to be able to sustain, uh, operate function in the conditions that we put it in. We were outside of its, its parameters, you know, and we broke it. And then, um, the, the second one that we had failed and we had to fix that. I, stuff. So did you have a backup that was like ready to go yeah. that you just had to, like, how do you, how do you put that back on? Like, do you have to get in the water? No, it it's inside the, it's inside the stern cabin. We had uh, two, so we have a redundancy, mm-hmm. but you gotta, if, if your auto tiller breaks because the conditions are so crazy, right? Imagine what the boat is. So we're in 30, 35 foot seas, yeah, yeah. middle of night. The boat is, you know, you lose steering. So now you're sideways and you're rolling like, and it, it's just sheer chaos. Oh, wow. You know? And you're trying to pull the auto tiller. You got to pull a pin and unscrew something and unplug yeah. wires and then get the other one in and, it, you know, Brian and I are in a space like this, trying to reach through a cavity, trying to get this thing fixed while the guys on deck are battling the seas with a broken oar gate, trying to hand steer the boat, you know, to get things like, I mean, it's, it's chaos. Oh yeah. It's, it's wild. Like you can't really understand the sheer noise in the wind, you know, 40 mile, 50 mile an hour winds, rain. So um, it's at night, Yeah, 30 foot seas. No auto, no auto tiller, broken ore gate. You're crammed in a small space with Brian trying to fix something yeah. while the other guys are like, at that point, what, what's going through your head? Nothing. That's what's so cool. I yeah. think that's our training, right? Yeah. I mean, nothing's going through your head. Like, it's just all, we've got to do this. Right. And I mean, I'm sure things were going through your head, but it was methodical, calculated. Things are happening and you're just doing Mm-hmm. You're, you go back to your training, you know, it's you're communicating. Hey, we have to do something. It's like, do this, do that. Everybody's working together as a team. You're all kind of a captive audience, right? Mm-hmm. Like you either fix this or you die. die. Yeah, <laughs> that, that would be extreme, but um, you roll over. I thought we were going to roll. That would be the worst possible thing to do would be to roll, you know, especially if you have a cabin door open. Right. Because you know? if you have a cabin door open, you roll. You stay rolled. You just stay. Your boat right? so loses you're, its buoyancy. You're going to put out, basically, at that point, what you guys would have to do is put out your emergency signal, I'm assuming, right? If it rolls over, stays rolled, you'd... Our e will go off automatically. Yeah, which it is would. Cool. Okay, got it. So, but we would have to deploy the life boat. Right. Which would be underwater. So, and then you're in 35 foot seas, 30 foot seas. Yeah, it would have been gnarly. There was actually, you thought it, you were thinking about this, obviously, because I mean, I'm thinking, I'm just assuming like you understand, like, okay, here's my primary alternate contingency emergency plan. This thing rolls. I got to fucking figure out how to get to the, the life raft. Right. Or I don't think we were thinking about any of that. Like, cause, cause I think, 
I don't know, you know, we're trying to rec- you know, go trying, back in yeah. time and, and do the best we can. Uh, I don't remember. I don't think I was thinking about any of that. Right. I was so focused on solve the problem. Right. If you solve the problem, none of that shit matters. Yeah. And I think the whole team was in that space. Right. Which was beautiful. I think that's why we solved it. We weren't spending any bandwidth thinking about, oh, well, what if, and oh my God, all this, and then we were automatically prepared through the training that if that situation arrived, we would start thinking about that situation and we would have the luxury of being able to get caught up to speed because of all the training that we did. Yeah. The muscle memory, right. The teamwork and all that great stuff. So we were spending all of our conscious thought probably on let's just solve this yeah. right now. But it was wild, man. Um, that auto tiller failure spooked, spooked everybody to whatever degree uh-huh. for a little while. You know, we were on hand steering for, for a couple hours. <laughs> Um, cause it failed like, it failed like three nights in a row. Ironically, Christmas night, not Eve, the night, the day of Christmas, the big storm came in. And that night we was when the storm hit and we, for like three days, four days later, we're in this massive storm. And so auto failures all the time. And then what that did was exposed because the, the failing of the auto tiller started to expose some battery wiring issues that were part of the boat. So now we're dealing with back-to-back issues, right? Auto tiller, we get the auto tiller thing going and next thing you know, now we're dealing with only one battery instead of two. So now we have to cycle energy at the right times because of sun and whole new set of problems because now you're working with half your battery power. Right. You're only allowed to charge so much during the day through your solar. And so what are we going to spend the, the, the energy on that we've we've got when we have to run a water maker? You know, we've, the water maker is the single thing that just absorbs so much power. And so we're on water rations to try to stay up with the water. We're dipping into emergency water because we got to get our water maker. I'm trying to figure out how we can work our batteries to limp home, you know, for, for another 12 days on one battery. But uh, just really cool problem-solving stuff, man. It was really cool. Yeah, really cool problems around rationing your water (laughs) (laughs) i i i'm fascinated by this because you're down to a battery you've got all these other issues that have gone you know through the system and as a team were there were there wheels starting to come off wheels were starting to come off a little bit yeah 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 and rightfully so right of course i mean that's what happens happens, but that's where yeah, that's where you um, you train to delay when the wheels come off. Mm. And when the wheels start to come off, you delay the rate of them coming off. That's where right. the training comes. I, I always look at leadership. There's natural decay. Anytime you put a team together, there's decay. Right. What leadership does is to try to delay the decay, the rate of decay. Right. right? You put a bunch of people together to, to go do a mission, to go do this or that. Natural decay is going to occur. Right. Across whatever parameter you want. What leadership does is tries to delay the rate of that decay mm-hmm. and at times tries to recharge, but knowing that it's inevitable. It's like time. Yeah. It, it, it's how long. And so that's where training and leadership comes into play is just that the wheels are coming off. Like, let's just keep, let's just keep the wheels on for a little bit longer or let's let them wobble a little bit more, but not as much as they could, you know. Were you, uh, were there times where you think back, you could have done a better job 
been a little bit more patient, emphasize a little bit more leadership. I, I don't believe in regrets. I'm just wondering, like, yeah. where, where did you, where were your individual lessons learned specifically? With it's exactly what you said for me personally. You know, um, I go back to one time when I wish, I wish I'd done a lot better. It was part of my personal goals, knowing me, um, talking with other people, self analysis because I'm, I'm doing all this as part of my, like, I took this very serious. Yes, yeah. training for this race, and it's like, hey, you know me. Where my where my opportunities for growth, improvement? What what do you think I'm? Where do you think I'm going to struggle in this dynamic? The best that we can try to pretend that we can anticipate what we're going to experience for this thing. And I'm leveraging a whole bunch of people in my <clears throat> life to just do some really good introspection and set some personal goals of who I want to be and how I want to present and show up for my team, for myself, align goals, doing a lot of that work. And it's funny, there's this one time when I just was like, yeah, I just missed the ball on that. And I wish I had picked up on it sooner and corrected because then maybe we would have been better off down the road as a team, you mm. know, or maybe my experience would have been better off or maybe so-and-so's experience would have been better off. Like, And like you said, no regrets. Um, I'm, really, I'm really proud of who I was during a row and how much work, mental work, you know, I put into – to the leadership stuff in addition to the physical stuff, right? I always said going into the row that this isn't about the physical at all. This row is 90% mental, psychological. and um, But yeah, there's a good moment when I just missed the mark and I wish I had been better in that moment for a teammate because I was inadvertently, unintentionally, just like, and it's one of those things, right? We talked about a minute ago, like you get so weak that this thing starts to come out of you yeah. and now it has a and I'm not recognizing it and it's new to you it's new to you know what I mean and I didn't recognize it soon enough and it's actually your your greatest of intentions is actually causing that harm until that harm kind of mm. you know and um I wish I would have been better at that moment right there mm. you know I could I know exactly when that moment was but uh that it's interesting because I I I'm to provide context, I think, too, because we're talking in general terms, which is there are times when I've been so tired and you're tired of being tired and you're, like, just kind of fucked. You got nothing, like, nothing left in the tank. You're, like, you know, stressed out. You're beat down. You're tired. You probably there haven't eaten a lot. You're a little bit dehydrated. Like, you're not your best. There are times when I'm like, man, I look back on, you know, circumstance and, and, and specifically where you kind of pretend like it doesn't exist. And I'm not saying that's what happens, but you're like, you see something, you don't get, you don't get ahead of it because you're like, ah, oh, maybe, maybe it's not there, but you're kind of like, you saw it. Mm -hmm. Yeah. 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 But you're like, you don't want to address it because yeah. you're like, well, fucking hopefully it goes It'll away. It'll go away. Until, <laughs> yeah. Or your ego lets you say, yeah, oh, it doesn't fucking matter. Like all those things. It doesn't right? matter. Yeah. yeah. Right. And like, man, I'll tell you, it's good though, because I, I'm glad that I've had that experience in myself because now I'm like, fucking get on it. Like mm. now, like. Listen to that. Yeah. I yeah. Can, I, you'll know, you'll appreciate this. You've been subjected to like psych profile tests oh, yeah. and all kinds of batteries of shit, mm -hmm. right? Yeah. And it, the, the battery of testing will go on and on and on and on and on until you decide to stop fighting it. 
once you decide to stop fighting it, then the testing's over. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> yeah, yeah. So whether it's yeah. 16 hours or 28 hours, you just yeah. continue to get pumped with these tests. And, t- and, you, and you're taking the test and it's like, you finally reach a point when it's like, I know the answer to this is this, but that's not like, that's not the right answer for me, but that's the answer that I know I need to give. Uh, and whether you're aware of it or not, I know if I give that answer, the testing is going to keep going on. Fuck it. I'm going to answer it this way. You answer it that way. And it's like, okay, hey, we're done here. <laughs> okay. I just went 18 hours to, to give up in that one little moment. Had I just said, I'm going to hold on. You know what I mean? Yeah. You've been there, right? Yeah. Yeah. <clears throat> I, it's, it's such an interesting dynamic for you guys, because you're, you're all former military guys. You're, you've got some Navy guys and you've got department of the Navy, obviously represented by yeah. you and enlisted in, were you the only officer or was everybody else? Yeah, I was the only officer. You, so you have a combination of enlisted and then of course you, but you're prior service. Yeah. You're prior. Yeah, yeah. How, how that was my biggest uh, slight as an officer was I had too much enlisted in me anyway. So it's kind yeah, of Cause you were enlisted pride. the majority of your career, right? Or was it equal? No, eight, eight or nine years, eight years, oh. eight and change. I was enlisted and uh, 11 years officer, but I thought it was flipped. Yeah. I thought you were 11. And one, nine, one cool was... thing is, is I had more sea time. I had more sea time than all three of those those Navy SEALs combined. <laughs> <laughs> Are you serious? Yeah. That makes yeah. sense, though. It was awesome. Yeah. And we would joke about that, and those guys were great. Yeah. I didn't get, I didn't, I didn't get off the boat. I didn't mean to hijack where you were going. No, uh-huh. I thought. I didn't get off the boat to, to wash the bottom of the boat. But those guys did. That's what right. Navy SEALs do. They jump in fucking the ocean when they're sharks, right? Yeah. I stayed on the boat and steered, man. Yeah. That's what they okay. – that was the big joke. I don't – I'm not a huge fan. I love the ocean for recreation. I love it. Like it's an amazing and beautiful place. Mm-hmm. It scares the shit out of me though. Like, really? Yeah. Like I don't like being out. Like when I say this, like I can get used to anything, but mm-hmm. it's just, yeah, we just don't, you know, do a lot of it going out into the open ocean. Like I went out with a buddy of mine, we were doing like some free dive spear fishing and just sitting in the ocean like where there's, you can't see the bottom. It's, it could be 10,000 feet. Who the fuck knows? And you're just like, just you yeah. and this big. Just waiting for something bro. to eat you. Well, and I know like, you know, because you, you can work through the, the like logic doesn't catch up with emotion. And I honestly, I believe that most of the time that logic and emotion, when they merge, it's through repetition that you can overcome that. Because in order to overcome fear, you actually sometimes have to just, triumph where you're logically you're like this can't happen however there's a fear cycle Mm -hmm. that you have to work through just repetition and then pretty soon you're used to it and you're like whatever i don't give a fuck i just haven't gone through the reps on it to go all the way through the 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 fear cycle if that makes sense yeah 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 i think that it's funny that you're talking about this because this is i'm fascinated with stuff and you don't ever want to short circuit the emotional response because it's essential Mm -hmm. There's, there's a lot of value with having, whether it's your fear cycle or not, right? Having your emotional reaction to something, there's a lot of valuable information there that your body's using, right? That we're not aware of. And so it's like, I don't ever want to have my logic cycle so awesome that I can just shut the emotional cycle off and go there. Yeah. You, you need them both. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? And you got to give the due process to the emotional cycle in order to capture the benefits of it, but then have some sort of trigger or something so that say, Hey, now's time to transition to my logic model and my rational model. Mm-hmm. 
and leverage that. And then it's through the combination of those two. That's fascinating that you just brought that up because that's where I've been spending a lot of time in the last couple months digging. Well, that that's where complacency comes in, right? So like overcoming, you know, that emotional piece. So if we just break it down into like two, two halves, right? Where mm-hmm. you can break down data and understand it from a very objective and empirically based perspective. And then you can say, but I'm scared and identify the fact that I'm scared and go, okay, but what, what, why? Yeah. And then you're like, okay, I'm still scared, but I still have to work through this cycle. An example of that is like, um, combat, like you never stop being scared, right? It's not a thing that I ever was like, oh, I'm not scared. Like I'm fucking scared of shit. Mm-hmm. But you get cycles and you, you kind of understand the environment. You get more, I would say, used to it. And then you come in and out of it. And of course, like, for me, it was like Iraq and Afghanistan both, right? So I had multiple cycles in Iraq and multiple cycles in Afghanistan. And there's an ebb and a flow. Mm-hmm. But then <clears throat> by the time I left on the last, I think my last rotation was like 2012. Like I was pretty flippant with what was going on. And then I kind of, through repetition, I had really repetition and ultimately what I would say is the, um, the philosophical and logical triumph over emotion to the point where you're like, fuck it, it doesn't matter. Mm-hmm. What? It's all over anyway. <laughs> right. Yeah. Where you're like, who cares? Yeah. You know, where then you just kind of kill that piece until something happens, but then you can, you go right back into it in the, the context of like, you just get more complacent and it doesn't keep you really driven to keep a fucking razor's edge Mm -hmm. and that's actually i didn't like that i didn't i didn't like how flip it i was with circumstances when you start losing your your touch point Mm -hmm. to that emotion fear whatever when you when you lose the the ability to touch it again that's when it's like okay hey i'm too far to the one side Mm -hmm. you know what i mean now we got to build some mechanisms to recreate the touch point Right. It's not, it doesn't mean that you have to live in the touch point. You, you, you always have to maintain the ability to touch that again and say, Hey, that, that fear is actually healthy because it's keeping me on the razor's edge or the sharp or keep me from being complacent or cavalier or reckless or dangerous yeah. flippant. Right. Mm-hmm. You got to have that touch point, man. Well, when, when did you join? What year did you join? I enlisted in 90, February 93. Okay. Yeah. Were you 0311 to begin yeah. with? Yeah. Yeah. And then, so that was nine years. Did you say eight and a half or nine years? Eight, 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 guys. Eight years, eight and a half years. Where were you at? I went to Catholic Iceland for my first duty station, Ground Defense Battalion. That's awesome. So God, awesome. Man. <laughs> 18 years old, right? Dude. Man, living in a foreign country, Icelandic. Wind. Iceland? Oh, oh my about gosh. It. Yeah. <laughs> um, and my daughter, I have a daughter, 27-year-old daughter who's Icelandic too. What's um, her name? Sarah Lissy. She's oh, yeah. amazing. Um, then I went to two two second battalion second Marines mm-hmm. on Lejeune, in Lejeune, and we did it. We pumped on a twenty second mu. We did a little something something off of Albania Herzegovina, mm-hmm. and then um, steamed directly to Liberia for for that civil war there that yeah. conflict. Did some time in, in Liberia, and on the out chop of that tour. I got accepted for a commissioning program. So um, I went back to the States and 
checked into 8th Tank Battalion up in Rochester, New York, University of Rochester for ROTC program, and then uh, 8th Tank Battalion. Did a couple years of college to finish up my um, my degree, and they commissioned me in 2000. So you commissioned right before 9-11, basically, or yeah. a year, some change? I remember where I was. I was yeah. at 3rd uh, Battalion, 5th Marines. I was a platoon commander. I had been in the battalion for about five months when 9-11 hit. Yeah, as a second lieutenant. So you second lieutenant, prior enlisted, and now you know like the game is on, yeah. right? And, and we never we didn't deploy right away. We went to we didn't Okinawa for a thirty first Mew for right after nine eleven. It was like two months later we went to Okinawa, did our six months there, came back, and then boom! All right, hey fleet up, we're we're going to Kuwait. We spent uh, like two months in Kuwait before the march. Okay, yeah, so you were on the invasion. Yeah, I did the invasion. Yeah. Stayed there for nine, ten months. We did the invasion. We did the transition. We started um, the SASO operations. We we, we um, started uh, realigning forces, and the retrograde started happening. Yeah. We stayed in Diwania for a couple more months. Oh yeah, I was. Yeah, I did Diwania. I was in Ajaf. Yeah, so we went in. You, were you Tarawa? Was that like? Is that Task Force Tarawa from the south through Kuwait with the Marines? Like, what? Which no, one was that? we you were part of the division. In fact, yeah. we were the. I was. The, well, it didn't matter. We were the push-up route one. Okay. We were Task yeah, Force yeah. Tarawa. We were just a division. Yeah, yeah. Blue yeah. Diamond or the MAF or whatever. I don't even know what we were. We were what was that like? What was that like for you guys? What, did you guys have any resistance whatsoever coming yeah. north? Yeah, 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 we fought a lot. Yeah, a lot. I remember. Oh, here's a story. We don't tell about. We don't talk about it often. Um, because it's not not interesting, I guess, but it's pretty cool. Uh, so we're getting ready. We get called early. Hey, you know they're getting ready to blow up the gasps, the gas yeah. oil. So we're gonna yeah, yeah. we got to march. We're early. We're we're leaving like a day early for yeah. the invasion. Oh, you guys are leaving at night. Oh shit! So we start working our way to the breach. Now I've got I'm the lead vehicle, lead soft skin vehicle for our battalion, who's the lead of our prong of attack for the regiment for RCT five. Right. And I get thrown four tanks. I get a platoon of tanks. So during, I was a horrible officer. So, <laughs> so during the workup for about a month, month before that, you know, breach plan. Here's the breaching. Here's the marking system. Here's this. Here's the route to get through the breaches to get from Kuwait into Iraq. Yeah. Da, 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 da. You know, you got a GPS, a plugger. I didn't know how to use that shit. Blue Force tracker. Like, yeah. Fuck, yeah. man. I spent time. I don't, I, don't, I don't care. We got four tanks. Yeah. All we got to do is follow four tanks. Right? plug that shit in, the tanks drive themselves, they shoot shit, we follow them, no problem. So we're at the breach, getting ready, and we're driving towards the breach, we get a call, hey, we're taking the four tanks because 7th Marines on the right flank is engaged in an armor fight, all the tanks are going down to 7th Marines, Tosh, you're the lead vehicle for the RCT. Oh, all right, well, fuck, how do we get through this thing? Well, <laughs> I wasn't paying attention to that stuff. And I was focused on other <laughs> stuff. Yeah. So we got to go through the breach. And, and let alone, I don't even know, like, what are the grid coordinates to the location that we're going to? It's generally north, right? Like, okay, cool, let's go that way. It's north. Um, and it's nighttime. And so we're driving, and uh, we are trying to navigate the breach, and we roll over concertina wire. Follows up my vehicle. And so I jump out of the vehicle, I grab my grab bag, jump into the, the vehicle behind me, swap out with the, the VC and jump in that vehicle and let's figure this the fuck out. You know, like that was the first hour of my war. Right. I was dealing with that. 
And then now we cross the border and we start going north. My vehicle ends up getting boom, 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 follows up, gets back caught up. It's, we're like an hour through the breach and we just start seeing hot spots all over the desert. And uh, so we go hot and we're shooting toes at these hot spots. We're shooting machine guns at these hot spots, Mark 19s. But we're not receiving any fire. We didn't realize what's going on. And majority, like we're all green, right? Like yeah, this yeah. is, we're all green. So we stop, boom, boom, boom. We start doing some moving. You know, we had called it all in through the battalion and everything right. like that. And stuff. Well, they were hot spots, but they were derelicts. And what the Iraqis were doing, whether they would collect sunlight and then they would become hot spots, but uh, they're all BMPs and 262s yeah, yeah. and, and they looked live. Right. And our, our technologies allows us to reach out to them mm-hmm. pretty far, right? And, um, you know, shooting javelins and tow missiles and shit like that. And um, realized that they were just derelicts right. from the first Gulf War. So that was our first, you know, engagement. And, you know, you, we start laughing about it. It's like, okay, okay, now we're trying to figure out where to go. Right. Uh, we're going to go that way. And uh, we get going, we get going, and I get a call over the radio, and you just see a line of hot spots across the horizon. You, know, you can't really tell depth, depth or yeah. whatever, but they look all like BMPs, T-62s, T-64s. <laughs> and we start moving up, moving up. I'm like, what? I mean, there's hundreds. I'm like, what the fuck? What are we doing? We call it in, da 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 you know, trying to get, you know, confirmation. Big gun battle going on with 7th Marines. We don't have a lot of the, the MEF assets that we want, right? And uh, as we start getting closer, getting closer, and the guys are like, okay, I guess this is how it goes. This is, this is what our, this is war. Right. Like, this is like no shit full scale. Like, I've been in combat before, but this is like full scale war now. We're in an armor fight and we got no tanks. So we get deployed and we start moving up and bounding and bounding. And they're like, sir, what do you think? I don't know how far we are. You know, we can't. Thermals at the time didn't have a lot of range detection. Right. Right. And trying to figure it out and you're getting closer, trying to figure out. I'm like, hey, just wait. Like, we're not getting fired at. They're not changing their formation. It'd be foolish to think that they didn't see us coming yeah i mean we're a regiment reinforced like moving north what's going on let's just wait let's get a little closer let's just wait bedouins fucking 200 300 camels all just trying to get out of the war zone and we almost just went to war with a bunch of so that was like the first couple hours of uh our oif experience and then the sun rose and we went that direction and we got to the we got to the gosp and shot a bunch of bad guys and captured a bunch of bad guys. And that was my first day going up uh, our Avenue route one. Yeah. So I don't know what your experience was like, but uh, it was pretty, <clears throat> I was, I was a lead vehicle and uh, the 101st. So you guys were East, we were West. Mm-hmm. So as we crossed the, cross the berm, I was vehicle one of the entire 101st airborne mobile. So I was driver, Driver Evan. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. And, yeah, pretty ripper. You know, we fucking rip, rip north. To be honest with you, like, you, know, you look back on it, and you're like, all right, well, we didn't really sleep. You know, but I just remember, like, I, I distinctly remember how fucking wild, like, it was, like the greatest light show I'd ever fucking seen in my yeah. life. Like, and I described it as like, when you see the American war machine fully committed yeah. and it's, it is really fucking powerful. It's, it's almost like the closest thing that I could imagine to what, uh, the power of God, right? Like, like that's how fucking wild it was, like how loud yeah. and big 
like how stop amazing nonstop like and you know we've been waiting right we just we were there i don't know if you remember that but uh we were co-located with the uh there was a green on green a guy one of the 101st airborne guys came in and shot up a bunch of dudes like inside one of the one of the tents oh shit yeah I actually have never, I don't think I've ever talked about this. We were there. And then, you know, and then, you know, prior to the buildup, right, the scuds are exchanging and you're getting into your bunker and pulling on your pro mask and they're like, fuck, man, like, let's just get it on. Like, let's go. Mm-hmm. And, you know, you're still wearing your chem suit. Yeah. You're like trying to figure out if you're going to get like, you know, anthraxed or something like that. And you're like, just get, let's get in the fucking vehicles. Let's go. Like, yeah. Let's go. So as Put soon fate as in the, our own hands a little yeah. bit instead of sitting here like this. Yeah. yeah. So I just remember very distinctly, like, let's let's stop fucking around. Let's go. And so once we finally did go, you know, we kept rolling until we we we, we got to south of uh, Karbala. It's called the Karbala Gap. Mm-hmm. You remember that big sandstorm mm-hmm. that came through and it basically stopped. That was the, the night after our. That was the night after our, the ambush I was in. Yeah. That was that night. Yeah, we were we were in Karbala, and that's where. Well, I mean, you you remember Karbala, yeah. so it's called the Karbala Gap. Yeah. As we we're getting ready to key up to go into uh, um, Najaf. Yeah, and then converge on Baghdad. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. We were in Diwania. Yeah, we were just south of so Diwania, we right there. Yeah, we were all. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> we were there. Yeah, yeah. One of my buddies. It's so funny. I went back to. Uh, uh, I think it was my. Yeah, it was my 10-year reunion. One of my buddies, Coleman Kinzer, um, he's a Marine. He was E6 at the time, I think. And uh, we hadn't talked for years. Mm-hmm. And we met at our high school reunion. Basically, we just sat there and got fucking drunk for and talked Iraq invasion yeah. stories. You know, and that was like... And uh, he was... He was there too. He was Diwania, right around the same. He's probably the same part of the same same guys you were rolling north with. And, was uh, he? With, was he? Was he? He was in the Marine Corps. Yeah, he said, yeah, yeah, "What yeah. he was? Who he was with?" Ah, uh, I'll have to reach out to him and ask him who he's with. It's such a small world. Yeah, and my other buddies like um, Michael Clancy. I don't know if you ever met him. He's like another six foot five guy. They're both like six foot five. I'm like five foot nothing. But they were in the same platoon together. It's, it's fucking small. Yeah, a little world. random. And then he went on to force and then we worked together at the agency. And I was like, hey, random question, Mike. Do you ever run into this dude called me? He's like, oh, fuck, yeah, man. Well, I love that guy. He's awesome. I was like, and they called him, like FaceTime to me. <laughs> yeah. It's like such a small world sometimes. Yeah. But, um, you know, that that whole buildup, because you're like, you don't know. Like, you, you don't, you, you're just expecting the unexpected. You're like, yeah. remember, I don't know if you guys did this, but. We were, we were like putting sandbags on the inside of our vehicles because we we're like, I don't know what the fuck. We're uh, blown up. We had like army, sandbags in there or whatever. It's fucking stupid yeah. as shit. Like, it's just so stupid. <laughs> Sandbag you know? the floorboards. <laughs> yeah. It made the vehicles not too cumbersome to, to do anything <laughs> with, like, man. It is like, you know, <laughs> thin skin vehicle. Shit. They're like yeah. freaking Swiss cheese. We're yeah. like pulling a trailer, you know? And like, God, man. It was like, and it was, it was, uh, it was wild. It was like a, it's like the wild west for us because it was. we like got chopped out and went to the agency after that and we were tested out to the, the, the agency. So we didn't really fall under 
anyone. So nobody really kind of knew what to do with us. We're mm-hmm. just like floating, figuring out what to do. So we're in Baghdad after everybody got to Baghdad and it kind of converged on the airport. Mm-hmm. Waiting for orders. Like, where are we going to go? We go north, we go south. Where, where are we going to go? And I don't know. I remember that like that first morning we woke up on the airfield, you know, obviously we'd gone into Baghdad and like a series of other things were happening, gone out to like the, gone through the terminals and some of the other shit and um, just like fucking tanks and like, you know, like uh, Bradley fighting vehicles and all this shit everywhere, just shit everywhere. And, I woke up, I'd kind of like taken a nap or whatever, right? And uh, we were trying to figure out where the fuck we were, what we were doing. And um, one of the guys was doing maintenance on a Bradley. Like, you know, they have the 25 mic, uh, 25 millimeter, 20 millimeter cannon on it. I forget which. And um, they would powered it down and then powered it back up. And it had a fucking ND right when this guy was walking in front like it was it was a coincidental and it was like literally inches and seconds like fractions of a second took half his head off and we're just standing there like as this accident went down and it was like the fucking amount of accidents that were happening like in the the crazy chaotic shit that was going on because the confusion and chaos of something like this like you know to provide listener um, reference is it's organized, but it's like organized chaos yeah. and it's organized chaos with extreme violence. <laughs> it's, <laughs> it's, but, it, but funny enough though, it wasn't the higher up you got and looking down at different levels of expand. Like that's when it got more and more chaotic. Yeah. Right? Like it, yeah, it was chaotic as at the individual level, but it wasn't like, oh man, this is, wasn't that messy hmm. but when you look up 10 feet higher they get 50 feet higher and you're looking down and you get a thousand feet up looking at it just absolute chaos absolute man. chaos like, who's fucking this cat man yeah <laughs> <laughs> uh, i i do you do you take away and have you taken away a lot of what i would say is lessons learned from that first do you index and reference those positions those points that that you distinctly remember from a leadership perspective today and if those continue to follow you throughout your career all the time yeah all the time and it's not um it's like you say there's just specific points specific index points that you that are that are big right there's a lot of points in between these big big ones that you could go back to and i could think about and reflect on but it's like hey man here's these this big moment here's this big moment here's this big moment and i go back to those all the time um and funny enough it's like hey i don't want to ever be like that again right right i don't i don't want to i don't want to do that again i don't i don't which is which funny enough right like there's plenty of really, really positive points that you could reflect back on. Like, Hey, I want to make sure I keep doing that. Or I want to be like that. Or I want to be like that. And, and I psychologically, I understand the value and the importance and the power, right. Of being able to do that. But I struggle, I struggle a lot. I think a lot of us do mm-hmm. right with, with these, these other points where like you say, not regret, but I should have been better. 
I should have been better in that moment. I could have been better. And then what was what was keeping me from being better in that moment? Was it um, just young and naive? Was it ignorance? Was it arrogance? Was it ego? Yes, 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 yes. Whatever, whatever they are. But um, oh, yeah, I got a few. And I get it. I get it, man. The power of going back to the really, really positive ones. Mm-hmm. And um, I think I just, and I can do that. I can do that if we were just sitting together and we could talk about the positive ones. But uh, I tend to go right to the a lot of room for improvement. I think I, I think a lot of people do that. Like I think you know we tend to dwell on the negative in this in a lot of circumstances. I mean I think. I think that's a that can be a positive experience, but I also think that like finding the tools to overcome those is really important. Um, mm-hmm. Which is my question, which is like, how how are you overcoming those? Like, like how have you worked through them? I don't know if I'm, I'm every day. I get better. I don't think I did it really well for a long time. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm learning how to do it better. I've got a lot of great people in my corner. Um, I've had to, I've had to accept a lot of humility. Um, and one of, one of my big drivers is uh, I see all these 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 fucking egomaniacs out there that saturate the social media space, mm-hmm. and it's not fair to judge them. So you don't judge them, but it's hard not to. But you find a theme of, hey, there's this guy that's always talking about how great he fucking is and how he's fucking so awesome and now he's doing this, doing this, doing this, doing this, doing this. And it's like, I don't ever want to be that fucking way. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? And I overcorrect because I'm so chicken shit to be that guy. I won't, like, I don't want to beat your own chest. I don't want to, like, I'm so chicken shit to become that, that entity that you don't respect. I think I overcorrect on the on the more of the self doubt, self deprecating, humble. Uh, fuck, I, I should have done better here. I should have done better. And it's not to say that I'm not proud of a lot of things or that I don't have ego. I'm not saying that at all. But I tend to be on this other side, and I'm working through that right now. I think there's a room for balance, and I think I'm on the right side of the 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 little fucking thing that sits in the middle, whatever that thing, the fulcrum, right? Like mm-hmm. I'm, I'm far to the right little bit less far to the right than I used to be. I'm so scared to be far on the left, but I'm learning. I'm learning how to be in the middle. I uh, started that nonprofit. I started the Big Fish Foundation to, and you know, like selfishly enough, probably to help myself, right? It took me a while. I was out of the Marine Corps for six, seven years. Struggled, didn't realize I was struggling, wanted to deny that I was struggling. Other people saw it. I was convincing enough to tell them that I wasn't, whatever. And then finally, life deals you a couple things that, oh, shit. Get some help. Come out of that with a with an epiphany moment. And it's like, hey, got a really good guy, you know, Bill with Rogue Fitness, just mm-hmm. encouraging me to start a nonprofit. And uh, I started the nonprofit, and I don't know if I started to help people or if I started it to help myself. Mm. And I don't know if it matters why I started it. You know, the fact is that helping others and helping myself, and it's probably what's keeping me together right now, I think. 
What's, what's where, where's where's the term big fish come from? Like what's uh, what's that? That was just my call meaning? sign. That oh. was just my call sign during uh, the war. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> a bunch of people. when we started the foundation, like, hey, what do we want to call this? And yeah. Like they thought it was a good idea and feels self serving, but yeah. it means a lot to a lot of people, and it's a way of honoring those men. And uh, so we just kept it. Yeah, that's it. That, uh, it makes it makes more sense, and it actually yeah. like provides context. I get a lot of smart people that uh, advise me, right, and, and uh, an audience of them. You got to change the name of the foundation. It's if you have to spend time, if you have to spend time explaining what the name of the foundation is, it's time that you could be spending in other things. Mm-hmm. It's not saying it's right or wrong. It's just and I'm like, yeah, yeah, yeah. And I see it. It's like, yeah, it'd be really cool to change the name of the foundation to something that wouldn't need explanation. Mm-hmm. But for a lot of people, when they they really really proud to say, hey, big fish, and when you explain what it is, it's it's really powerful to them. So I don't know what's right or wrong. Mm-hmm. We're just, we're the Big Fish Foundation, you know. It's not a fishing, it's not a fishing thing no. where you take veterans fishing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. no, it's not. Yeah, no. I, I knew that, but I wanted to make sure. Yeah. That we, oh. <laughs> <laughs> I still answer emails all the time. It's like, hey, I'd like to sign yeah, up like for a fishing, fishing trip. Um, like, no, yeah. it's not the way we do. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I, I, I got to ask, like, you know, knowing you and kind of, you know, listening to you and talking to you. Um, when you, when you received the, the silver star, what, like, was that something like, how does that, how does that change or does it change anything or does it make you, um, like, how does that, what's that feel like, I guess, like in the context of like emotionally and psychologically, like, because obviously that's it's it can be a reminder of a of a pretty fucking bad day. Yeah, uh, it was a Navy Cross. Oh, I apologize. It's okay. No apologies. Um, and it was when I when I was awarded the Navy Cross, I was at a certain age, psychological development, maturity. You're living. You're the product of your own successes. Mm-hmm. You know. You feel invincible. You're fucking whatever, whatever, whatever. You're on your high, you know. And I think um, as much as I was aware and I had good, again, good mentors, you know, hey, be careful, this or that, you know, the, all the things that come with receiving a high award and the attention mm-hmm. and this and that, and you think you're protecting yourself against it, like I didn't do it as well as I thought I was, right? Like it, this growth, it, it, this is the luxury of time, being able right. to look back. 15 years, 20 years, right? I don't know how many years, 15 years. Um, close to 20 years. 2004, 2003 was when the action took yeah. place, awarded in 2004. 20 years already, man. 20 years. But uh, looking back, you're like, oh, man. But you don't you don't judge yourself. It's like, hey, you were, you were 28 years old, 30 years old. Like, it's going to affect you those certain ways. It could have affected you worse. You were managing it. And so I think it did have an impact on me mm-hmm. in a – in a negative pull, it did mean, have a lot of good, but I think it affected me. You mean in in from an ego perspective, or what do you mean? Yeah, I think I would be. I think I would be a. I don't think I'd be a good person if I didn't like acknowledge that. Yeah, like putting that level of award on your chest didn't do something to you. Right, right. I'm not proud to say that it did, but I'm also like balanced and level enough to recognize. Yeah, it, it did. And then amongst amongst a lot of other things too, right? Like everybody just like talks about the Navy Cross because that's what's on the news or the Wikipedia page mm, or whatever, yeah. whatever. But it's like there was so many other things. And 
that whether we're recognized or not by an official capacity, but like the men and the mm -hmm. audience that you're surrounded with, right? Like that ambush was gnarly, but I could give you 15, 20 other things that were twice, if not three times as gnarly as, as that ambush, mm -hmm. you know? And you have those things with the guys that you shared them with, and it starts to build. You, you've studied, you're well read, right? Like, you, you know, history and shit, like Napoleon on the Eastern Front, and they call it the Victor's disease, mm. right? Who Napoleon, and they, they named this disease after this guy. And uh, basically, Napoleon was so successful, so successful. He's the product of his own success, and that he's successful, he's able to defeat odds because the momentum of success is carrying him through these odds, right? And it's doing shit to him. And. He gets all, all signs are pointing, don't go east in the winter against Russia. Everything. And he, he's smart enough and he can calculate and he, he recognizes it logically. Mm -hmm. It's funny, we're going back to what we talked about a couple minutes ago, but like logically he, it, it all computes, but it doesn't because of his own success that he goes east anyways and he gets the shit kicked out of him mm -hmm. and he kills millions of people, right? Like how does that, what, how does that process work. I'm not putting myself on any playing field with Napoleon, but I'm saying that somewhere along the line, I started becoming a product of my success and success started happening because of the success, not because of the talent or the skill. Right. And you became more and more successful and you did things and you could take chances and risk it and it pays out good and it pays out good and it keeps paying out good. And you're empowering other people because they believe in your success. And so then they rise to the occasion and you're more successful, more successful. I don't know where I what. I was fortunate enough to be with Pat Malay in Fallujah and uh, he was my battalion commander. And I remember him, it was after we had secured MSR Michigan. I was supposed to be in Quantico. I wasn't even supposed to be in Fallujah, but um, he's like, Hey Tosh, I think you've had enough. And I was like, yeah, no Pat, like, you know, like he's like, no, I, I think, I think for your own good, but for the good of the men, for the good of like, you've had enough, you gotta go. And I remember how bitter I was in that moment. There was other things, right? Like General Natansky, and I was supposed to be at Quantico, but whatever. And um, I was pissed, angry. And it isn't until recently, in the last maybe six, seven years, you know, thinking about it, uh, talking with Pat, like that was the best gift he ever could have given me and the men that I loved mm -hmm. was recognizing, right? So back to your thing, like, where did it all start? I don't, I don't know. Was it the Navy cross? Did right. that start the, this, the process probably started somewhere earlier than that. And it just keeps manifesting. And I was just so fortunate to have a man in my life who was my boss, my mentor, good friend, brother who said, Hey, that's enough, man. Call you on your own bullshit. Instead of being in this little circle of self licking ice cream cones and giving mm -hmm. each other blow jobs, right? Like everybody wants to be in that little circle. Right. Everybody wants to have their collection of five dudes that never calls you on your bullshit. They, in fact, they acknowledge your bullshit. So they make it real. And then you start believing your own bullshit because you're going to help him believe his own bullshit. Yeah. Nobody's going to call you because if I call you on your bullshit, you're going to call me on mine. And then the cards start falling in. Yeah. I call it drinking your own piss. Yeah. You can do it a couple of times, but eventually it starts to make you sick and it'll yeah. kill you. Like, yeah. that's <laughs> I literally was like... It's fucking drinking your own piss. Yeah, like, that's great. And there's a lot of guys that do it. Like, yeah, a lot of little groups, little boy clubs, little yeah. boy bands. And I was good. And Pat, Pat probably, like I, it, it, Pat, like he just said, hey, you've had enough, man. So I don't know where that, where that whole conversation came from. But it was like, did the award of the Navy Cross start to affect me? Yeah, it did. 
in ways that you don't realize it when it's happening and it's not until farther down the road as you mature as you grow up as time travel happens and you can look back and you're like oh shit and i don't even think i could point back to the exact moment it started happening mm. but i can point back and say yeah it, it certainly did and i'm I, i'm super cautious about that to this day probably to my own fault i i i think i think you're right i mean i i I, I've told this story a lot, right? It's like I got fired from the agency. It was great. I mean, you know, I I was an asshole. I was a complete and utter asshole. Like, um, I was drinking my own piss. It was like, send me to the worst places in the world. I do the most complex shit and fucking great, you know? Mm -hmm. And then, yeah, you suck. <laughs> You know, didn't have anything to do other than like, it's like, uh, you know, a lot of ego, a lot of um, checking my own piss, you know, like I'm the smartest guy in the world and I'm going to fucking, I'm the brightest guy here. I know better than everybody else and like, just not true. Mm -hmm. It's just like, so when you, you know, get humbled like, and I think it's it's really good for a lot of my. I mean, it's kind of like being the new guy, right? It's like you get get to a team, you're the new guy, you're the F and G, you get the shit kicked out of you. Eventually, you get your confidence back, you start building your way up. But it was good. It was a great humbling perspective in life because it was like you, you know, Green Beret, work at the agency, and then you start like believing your own bullshit, mm. <laughs> you know, and I'm like. I don't believe my own bullshit anymore, right? It's like, nah, it's okay. I can, like, have real conversations with myself and have, I think, an objective reality. And I think, now, one of the things I go back to, which I'm ex extraordinarily grateful, is, like, um, for the Marine that, that gave it to me. I forget exactly who it was. It's like, I go back to um, the old breed, like, every other year. Yeah. You know why? Because it's like, man, that puts things in a perspective in a way, like whether it's, you know, Helmet for My Pillow or the Old Breed or some of these other combat memoirs. Mm -hmm. I think Matterhorn is another really good one that was written for that in Vietnam by an, by an Army guy. And because I'm, I'm caught in my own world, right? I'm caught mm -hmm. in my own world. We have a generation of war fighters that were Iraq and Afghanistan. We kind of like see it from a different perspective. But then when you read those, which I think are required reading in the Marine Corps, right? Yeah, E.B. Like, Sledge, the, yeah. the old breed is for yeah. sure. Yeah. yeah, and it's like, those guys had a really difficult time. And, mm -hmm. like, and knowing that he's translating his experience into the written page, I'm only getting a portion of yeah. what it actually felt like. And like having the, the, dexterity and the emotional empathy from like other war perspectives too, because you know, you had a different war than I did, you know, mm -hmm. like the private that was 18 years old that just got out of, you know, boot camp or, you know, basic training in AIT. Like they were scared out of their fucking mind. I was 26 years old, yeah. dude. Like I was a grown man. Like I was grown man. life experience behind yeah. you still. Yeah. Yeah. I can't imagine. You know what's fascinating that. about that book real quick, just to interrupt you because yeah. I don't want to be a dick, but. Look at the difference between the, how that book is written, and 
and the image of himself that he talks about vice the books that are written today. Oh yeah. These guys that are writing these books today, they blow themselves. I'm mm -hmm. the fucking, I was the greatest. I was this, I was that. This is my experience. I'm such a fucking this. I'm such a fucking that. Right. I get, I get frustrated with it. You read EB's mm -hmm. book. You read a lot of the books from that generation. They, they talk like, Hey, I was just a shitbird. I was just mm -hmm. an idiot. I wasn't the great, like I was just this, I was like, there's so, there's something very refreshing about the character of the person who's portraying the, himself mm -hmm. in a lot of those books, vice what we get today. Mm -hmm. And man, if I, if I want to, if I want to tell my son, like, Hey, I want you to read a couple books because I wanted to have a positive imprint on who you're going to be as a man. Mm -hmm. I, I don't want you reading any, any of this shit. Yeah. There might be one or two and we're not going to say their names. They know who they are. Right. Like mm -hmm. they're part of the self licking ice cream cone band. Mm -hmm. Right. They're drinking each other's piss. Like that drives me. I do not want like the, best people you could ever be around you is somebody that loves you enough to tell you the hard things mm -hmm. to keep you honest, to keep you grounded. Right. Like that's who I want to be around. You know, that's it. I've already fucked it up. I've already fucked it up in my <laughs> life too many times. Right. In, 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 in our world that's gotten people killed. Yeah. You know? So like, is that, is that weigh on you? substantial amount like, like more than i think it does i was using this a conversation i'm going through some shit uh va stuff but um i, I went through the hyperbaric oxygen mm -hmm. therapy and it allowed me to like step aside from the shadow i didn't even realize i was living in a shadow right like you live in a shadow for so long it's your new norm it's like it's just a little darker it's a little dimmer maybe it's even getting darker you don't even realize it right it's not like you're living in a I'm living in a shadow and it wasn't until I finished this hyperbaric treatment, I was given this luxury and it's like, Hey, I'm standing outside the shadow now mm. and I'm looking back and I'm like, wow, I was standing in that and I can still see. And I don't ever want to, I don't ever want that shadow to disappear. I want to stand. I need the juxtaposition of being outside of it. Right. I'm standing outside of the shadow to recognize that there was a shadow there and that's who I was. Um, and when you're in the shadow, you don't realize how much it's weighing on you. And I can only think like, I think I'm outside the shadow, but am I, am I actually even in another fucking shadow? Mm. It's just a different shade. Will I, will I get some more treatment or will I get a different perspective or will I be sure, have another conversation with somebody that's given me some wisdom that'll help me step even farther and then realize where I'm, you know what I mean? So I think, and it wasn't until that treatment that I realized that I'm not a computer guy, but you know, I don't know if it's, what's the, what's the, the pro that's always working in the background. Software. Is it RAM or ROM yeah. Yeah, or something sure. like that? Yeah, right? yeah. Whatever the fuck it yeah. is. And you got only so much that you can use. And it's like, I feel like somebody just took my computer and opened up the magic screen and said, you've got like these seven applications running in the background that you mm -hmm. have no idea. No wonder why your computer's running slow. Mm -hmm. No wonder why like Excel's not doing computations correctly. No wonder why the website's not opening. Mm -hmm. You've got all of the, you got all these programs that are running in the background and it wasn't until that finishing that treatment that I was able to recognize that I've got those applications running in the background and then being able to resource the right people to help me shut those fucking applications down mm -hmm. to run some antivirus software to get that, that thing should not be running in the background. Hey, that thing is running in the background, but let's let's be aware of it and let's use it. Like, cause so there's some of this stuff that's running in the background. That's important, mm -hmm. you know, um, the guilt, but it's, 
it's running in the background in a bad way. We need mm-hmm. to we need to figure out how to use it in the right way. And so, um, yeah, I think that's that's my life right now, and trying to help other veterans recognize that and get them aligned with with the resources because I don't I don't know too many other people that are talking about it this way. And it connects with a lot of veterans that are struggling. It doesn't connect with other groups of veterans, and that's okay. Yeah. Right? Like, that's fine. Then you don't need it. But the fact that it's connecting with this group, then that's the audience I want to serve because mm-hmm. it's setting the conditions to to grow through this, you know? Yeah. It, it, the last several years, because I, I was in a, a different subculture of older guys mainly, you know, that were, like, we didn't have a lot of privates, right? And there wasn't a lot of privates cruising around in our lives. Mm-hmm. And having the business has allowed me a different look into the war and the different war perspective of younger war fighters that I didn't have. I just didn't have the context. Like I've had more context with like Afghans and Iraqis and things like that because I, I didn't have E1 through, you know, E5. And the struggle that a lot of the younger guys face that might have only done, you know, four to six years, maybe got a couple rotations, but those are brutal rotations. Mm-hmm. And part of me is like, I, there, there's a hypothesis too, in the context of like, you have a younger brain that's not fully developed. It's not fully baked. So you have an 18, 19 year old kid that's exposed to, um, extreme violence and, but then it's also all the things that go along with that, right? Because it's not just extreme violence, right? It's it's extreme stress and fatigue and, you know, all the different emotional and psychological pressures that go along with that. Um, and I, I really, I, I, I find myself with this profound amount of, of empathy and also like a desire to really try to plug in and, and try to solve a problem, right? Like it's, that's like huge part. Like, how do I solve the problem? <clears throat> Which is, you know, this whole thing is about leading by example. I'm not very good at, like, you know, I should say, like, I, I, I'm not going to be on podiums trying to give motivational speeches, but if people can go out and, like, start a business and free themselves from working from others and, like, mm-hmm. you know, emancipate themselves from government service, well, I'll lead by example. I'll be the guinea pig, you know? Yeah. It's fine. I'm good with that. Mm-hmm. But I think like our commitment to the younger guys that were, that were there and our commitment to ourselves. Like we can't, like it's still a team, right? It's like, we, we have this like shared experience. So as I look into your eyes and hear your, your stories, I know, I know what that feels like. Mm -hmm. Like I know what it feels like. And like, that's my tribe. Part of guilt is also, I think, the fuel that you need yeah. to drive the inertia of good. So it's like part of it is like I I'll put that on the software that I already know exists so I can keep driving in the right direction. It can't just be about me, right? It's like that's fucking stupid. <laughs> like, yeah. it's, you know, it's and it's not altruistic in its entire endeavor, right? It's like it's selfish and because it's, I it, need it. It's okay. It's okay yeah. that some of it is about you. The two can coexist, right? But it's not just about you, right? And it's not the majority is just about you. And, and I'm learning that, that the, that the two can coexist. It's not a one or the other, right? Like you just said, like it's not entirely altruistic 
but man, is it 90%? Is it 95? Is it 87? I don't know, but the, it, it, the power of the word and mm-hmm. reconciles a lot for me right now, you know? Do you read, do you read philosophy or you, do you like think about philosophy? Do you read the Bible? I like, think about it religious a lot. or I'm not religious. Um, I believe in, I believe in the message. Um, I believe in the spirit of it all. I haven't been reading a lot because by, ability to comprehend and stuff and retain is, is I'm healing. So, um, right. but, uh, there's just so much work out there. That's just beautiful. I, I want to read more. I spend a lot of time thinking mm. a lot of time talking to other people and it's like, Hey, if you're super well read and then we're having conversation, I'm benefiting from your synthesis of what was well read. And to me, that's, that's easier. Maybe that's, maybe that's the, the easy way out, but, um, it works for me to hear, yeah like people that I respect and appreciate and even people that I don't like to hear how they've synthesized stuff that they've read. Like it's all information coming in. I spent a lot of time, maybe too much time digesting all that. Yeah. What are you listening to? Like what's your go-to? My own bullshit. (laughs) 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 Yeah. My own bullshit. (laughs) I can't stop thinking about my own bullshit. How I don't, I mean, that's the curse. I wanted, I wanted to, I'm I'm doing this to you, I Paul. Please, so yeah, yeah. you talk about like, you know, um, it's the ordinary guys, yeah, ordinary guys and gals. These eighteen-year-olds that they go in, they enlist, right? I I refer to them as the hoopleheads. I've always called them hoopleheads, after the the Deadwood miniseries, yeah. right? Yeah, I love yeah, yeah. Swearingen and calling them, <laughs> yeah. them this fucking, <laughs> and they hated it, right? Like it was yeah. an insult, but it was a term of endearment. Yeah, you know, fucking hoopleheads. Well, like, like think about this for a minute, like. Your special forces, your special operators, your team guys, whatever, right? Like, um, phenomenal. They're really real talented, right? Like, they go through screening processes. They get screened. Their aptitudes are here, generally speaking. They have more capacity, more faculty, right? They go in, and now you're a team guy. You're a special forces dude, mm-hmm. right? And sure. then you get hundreds of millions of dollars of phenomenal fucking training, and it increases you because, and, and rightfully so, it's preparing you to sure. do these yeah. these exceptional things, right? And then, and then, and then, when you get out, you have the benefit of the prestige of that, right? And then you have the sexiness of that, but then you also have all the skills and the training mm-hmm. to go along with your original aptitude, right? And so, this is no insult to anybody in any sphere, and I'm not just trying to be safe. Like, you're here. A lot of the hoopleheads that I've served with that I love, right? They join. Let's let's face it. You're not the typically you're not the smartest, most talented individual to make the minimum requirements to be an infantry guy. Sure. In yeah, the Marine Corps, yeah. mm-hmm. right? In fact, you probably have a set of waivers, right? And 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 this is true for all the other things, right? It but is. Yeah. but generally speaking, you have that, and now you have nowhere near the budget to get the quality of the training. Mm-hmm. The this or that to build the little faculty that you have to even greater, but you have it. Mm-hmm. And then when you get out, well, let's even talk about when you're in, because of the nature of the role, like these hoopleheads are like, like the experience that we had at the ground level in Iraq, much different than at the team level. You're living in a, 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 a fighting hole that you dug mm-hmm. by hand for 30 days before the war. Right. You're you're sleeping if you even sleep in the seat of your Humvee or laying on the ground in the sand like you don't have. A, so it's a different, much more primitive 
and with that, it has its own unique sets of stresses requirement, not to say that the other, they, that has their own unique sense of stresses and things like that, but they're two different beasts, mm -hmm. you know? And then, um, when, when these guys get out, these guys and the gals get out after four years, six years, eight years, the professional network they have is a lot smaller. Their skills that they've been developed and nurtured and trained, like aren't as, and they struggle, mm. right? And they're struggling and struggling. And then when you look across the board, Who's getting the most money to help veterans mm -hmm. after they get out? It's 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 not the it's not the ordinary line hoople heads, mm -hmm. right? It's it's these when 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 you can do a gala and raise twelve million dollars in one night, or you have a budget that's fucking sixty million dollars a year, right? That's awesome, but you have a lot of marketing power. You have a lot of other things behind that corner. And that's what America wants to do. Right. Like, because, because you have the, you have the ability to market that mm -hmm. and it's sexy and it, and it's, and it's right. It's just, I'm in this space where I'm recognized. Like, I don't know what the number is, make up a fucking number, right? Like there's probably 15 times as many people down here as there are in that place, but they have a hundred times the amount of money and resources made available. Yeah. Right. Mm -hmm. Whatever the numbers are, but like, and that's where I'm energized. And it's not, I don't want to compete with that. I don't want to fight that. I don't want to point fingers at that at all. I just want to fill a gap. Right. I want to collaborate in ways that can can fill this gap down here. Mm -hmm. you know, the stuff that we talked about, it's, it's, it's the, the fucking guys. Not that anybody wasn't on the ground, but it's, it's these men. It's like, that guy never should have been in the Marine Corps in the first place. Yeah. I don't know who faked that fucking paperwork to even get this guy arrested. <laughs> right. He never should have been in the Marine Corps. And now he's in Arlington. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? And God, man, these beautiful bastards and what they're struggling with. And it's like, hey, all this guy needs is 500 bucks to pay his fucking rent. Right. Like, here's $500, man. Just here it is right out of my bank. I'm like, mm -hmm. meanwhile, this, this organization's got $60 million, but you're a fucking shithead. You know, you've got a, a bad conduct discharge, but you're still a human being, but you don't get access to this source of the, 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 this funds or these programs because you got bad paper mm -hmm. and you were a 19 year old shithead that was put into incredibly challenging situations and stresses that you weren't probably even psychologically developed to be able to handle and process anyways. Yet that's the nature of, that's the nature of war. That's the nature of business and no shit. You made a bad decision and how, and so for 10, we're going to, we're going to hold it against you for 10 years, 15 years. And so in one bad decision, you're going to have to live the rest of your fucking life when you were put in exceptional circumstances. Now I'm not, I'm not trying to erase the past. I'm still going to hold you accountable for it, but, but we're not going to, we're not going to fucking hold it against you mm -hmm. and let's help you, you know? And that, that's, that's where my, that's where my fight is. Cause I know I was an idiot. I was a dipshit Lieutenant who made a lot of bad decisions. And I can only imagine that, you know, a lot of people from higher up looking at, Hey, that's bad apple. That's a bad apple. But I was given a second chance. I was given a second chance. And I came out of those second chances, those second, second chances. Largely was it due to the Navy cross? Maybe was it due to success building up? Like we talked about success, success, success allows you to overcome these things that you shouldn't have. I'm this unique individual and I don't ever want to lose sight of that. I don't ever want to lose sight that my feet are in the fucking mud mm -hmm. 
and I've got a lot of luxury, a lot of opportunity. The fact that I'm sitting here on a podcast with you, like I've got, I've, I've got all this opportunity. There's so many people I want to share these opportunities with, you know, the fact that I can get hyperbaric treatment and get accepted to this program. It's like, I'm so blessed. I'm so fortunate. I don't ever want to take that for granted. And, and, and how can I give it to five others? How can I give it to two others? How can I borrow a $10,000 to give it to five others? Like, I don't, I don't care what, but I, my feet are in the mud still. And I think that's what drives me today. I don't know if it's healthy or not healthy, <laughs> but, but that's where I'm at. You know, um, maybe 10 years down the road, I'll be looking at myself saying, man, you were fucking, you, you were foolish back then. And, and you know what? I hope so. I hope yeah. 10 years from now I'm looking back saying, Hey, you were, you were better than you were 20 years ago, but you're still foolish because that means I'll have grown over the next 10 years. You know, what's well, a very, it's a very, um, I think it's a very healthy thing. And ultimately it's, it's philosophically positive for people to say you know, I think it's a, that's a Socrates quote, which is like, I always like to pull this back, which is Socrates was an infantryman. And it's interesting that the, you know, the father of Western philosophy was ultimately a 20 year infantry yeah. guy, right? Where he's like, the one thing I know is I know nothing. So I think it's Didn't good. Did you just do a, I think the Black Rifle just had an Instagram post on a Socrates quote today or yesterday, actually. Probably. Yeah. yeah I've, I've been reading a lot of philosophy and I think. I, I think it's very profound. I mean, for most of us now, especially like, you know, we're, we're like, we're, we're getting close to 50. We're like, you know, a lot of us aren't drinking our own piss anymore. Mm -hmm. And I think you know, the, the point that you're making from the special operations community and then the, the, the rest of the war fighters, I have, I've, had a ton of access to people that weren't just from the special operations community, but the warfighter mm -hmm. and the warfighter in general, it's, it's, it's younger, right? It's not as, it's not as old. It's not as developed. Um, the, the nonprofits associated with helping the warfighters, there's a, a great marketing apparatus around the special operations community and then the endowments associated with them. And there's mm -hmm. like, you know, obviously the Navy SEALs do a great job at marketing. They do a great job of hosting, you know, very big events that raise a lot of money because, you know, civilians want to be attached to that, right? They see the, they see the marketing and they see, you know, the, the trident and they see, they want to be close to it. They mm -hmm. want to be close to the, to the, to the operators. And it doesn't, and, it doesn't make it bad either. No, it doesn't. It doesn't make no. it bad or wrong. And uh -huh. there's no, it's just, it's just what it is. It's what it is. Yeah. But I mean, for the last several years, I've seen this where, uh, if we work, you know, we work with a lot of different organizations and then we have several folks that might not have been in special operations, but they've got, you know, two missing legs mm -hmm. and their combat experience is no different. It was uh, physically more traumatic and ultimately it's not, it's not any different. You're exchanging gunfire in a two-way range. It's the same feeling I have. It's mm -hmm. the same feeling that Private E1 had. And I think that shared experience, it also requires like, man, we, we really do have to talk about it. I think it's also one of those things that it's cathartic. It's also like, you know, part of this existential crisis as guys like evolve and try to redefine their purpose and ultimately plug in and create value because it's stuff's given to us in the military. Mm -hmm. It's like, here's your mission. Here's your purpose. Yeah. Here's your, the definition of your professional being is built in, in through your, 
your MOS and or your position as like platoon or company or battalion commander. And then now you're a civilian and you've got all this like shit in your rear view mirror that is directly contributing to your success that's in front of you as well because you got a ton of baggage that a lot of people just, it, it can be fuel, right? But it can also hold you back. And I think a lot of the civilian counterparts that are roughly our same age, they, they don't have a lot of the same guilt associated with this. Like, it's not the same guilt. Mm-hmm. Like it's, it's just not. It's because I've heard this multiple times too, where guys are like, oh, I should have served. That's not the same type of guilt that, that you and I probably carry around on, on a regular basis. And it's not equally shared. It's also, um, we're not equally yoked from the context of, you know, it's not as if there's a big equalizing machine out there yeah. that says we're going to equally fund nonprofit initiatives uh, based on who actually needs the funding. It's not necessarily like that either. Right? I don't think there should be a great equalizing thing. No, that's just government, anyways. But like, I think the equalizing thing is just this a conversation yeah. and understanding and having some empathy mm-hmm. and appreciation, mutual respect, right? Um, deflate some ego, uh, whatever it is. Like we're all, we're all, it's just all good conversation to have. It's essential to have the conversation at a minimum, right? What do you, kind of shifting away from that, what's your, you're, you're, you're kind of a beast physically, right? I mean, you just rode across the Atlantic. Like I, I, you put out so much physical energy how are you sustaining that like like as just like your body like i'm 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 asking this only from like you know a physical and mental health perspective is like dude do you just like push through fucking pain walls every day just to get shit done or yeah i think i'm physically in uh, <laughs> i'm physically in a decline <laughs> uh, you think yeah for sure but it, and you know what like i've been going i do a lot of self help now right like working with people like i'm recognizing that i'm on a I might need to uh, let me get one of them happy little pouches. You sure, right there. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, thanks, man. Yeah. Um, I'm not on a decline. I'm in a phase change. Okay. I've started to look at it like this. I've started to look at it as seasons. We're at a, a point in our life now. It's funny. I did a. Um, I was up at Heroes and Horses. Oh yeah. Um, did an event there. Oh, Mike right? Yeah. Oh, great um, Big Fish partnered with uh, um, Heroes and Horses, and we did a, an event for some veterans. And I went through the saunas and the cold tubs and wow. The first time I had ever done that right back and forth. But then we went into that Lakota sweat lodge and man, I had an experience in there. Seriously? Yeah. Oh, legit. And I was skeptical, a healthy skepticism, mm-hmm. an open skepticism and it wasn't working, wasn't working. And then all of a sudden like, bang, I had an experience. So many things pulling together. Um, and the, the owl and the moose, came to me, right? The owl is the keeper of time in the changing of the seasons and the keeper of time, right? And the moose is this this wisdom, this mature, this physical, but it the big bull moose represents a phase change, right? And so I'm realizing that, you know, my spring was th- 20 years ago, 30 years ago. My summer was 15 years ago, right? I'm in my fall now. I'm going, and it's it's like this phase change, recognizing that I'm transitioning from summer to fall. And I feel like where I've struggled in the last two, three years 
with chasing goals and identity and this and that and where I want to be, what I want to do, decisions that I'm making to, to do certain things. I was actually this Indian summer trying to hold on, mm. right? It's supposed to be fall. It's the middle of October. <laughs> but for some reason, I'm trying to be an Indian summer and it's a gorgeous day. And it's like, hey, that's a fool's play. Like just, but it's, it's natural and normal. I need to embrace that I'm in the fall now. And it, I'm no less strong. I'm no less me. It's just an evolution. And I'm evolving. And my physical strength isn't represented by these things like it was in the summer or the mm. spring. Your strength is represented by these things that are indicative of the fall. And it's the, it's the, and I'm, I'm, anyway, you could probably think on it more than I can articulate right now. But um, yeah, my body is, and it's fall and it's changing, but my strength and my perspective and it's, it's this phase change, you know? And yeah, I just rode across the ocean. I wasn't in the best physical shape of my life, but I think I performed the better than I have in most things of recent years in my life mm. during that row. You know, I just, um, I just undertook the rogue fitnesses, uh, December challenge called the standard 24 hours. And I, you know, I'm not in the best. I hadn't rowed in over a year after right. getting off that rowboat, and I just sat down on a rower and rowed for 24 hours. <laughs> it's not because I'm physically stronger or anything like that. It's something's changing, and I'm learning to recognize and accept this thing. But, yeah, up at Micah's place in the sauna, and then I break down in the middle of the sauna. I have to leave the sauna early. I'm like, what the fuck is that? And then I jump in the cold plunge, and I stand up out of the cold plunge early. And I'm like, what the fuck is going on? And then we do it again the next day. And I got a little bit, and the next thing you know, the next, the third day, we're in the Lakota sweat lodge. This isn't working. This isn't working. This isn't working. Hey, we're going to do a fifth door. Like, hey, this isn't working. All of a sudden, like, boom. Like, this experience, things that I haven't, things that I had locked away and put in a steel container mm -hmm. in concrete, underwater, right? Like, came out. And uh, it was this one moment that came out that I had been convincing myself didn't exist anymore, that didn't matter anymore, whatever, whatever. And I had this flashback to the ambush. And uh, it came out in the sweat lodge, totally unexpected. Not what I was even in there to do, not even intention setting, what I thought I was going to do. And bang, this thing comes out. And the shaman actually starts coughing and vomiting. And I didn't, I wasn't aware until afterwards we talked about what was going on. Right. And this is, and he didn't even know that I was going through this and he's confident and he's vomiting and he's spitting into the hot rocks and boom, 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 boom. And then I was fucking, and, and right as that was happening, I was burnt. I felt like I was going to instantly like incinerate, like just like I was going to go up in flames. Like I felt like that was happening to my body. And then when he started coughing and everything, almost my body got really, really cool. And we were, it was like 200 degrees in this fucking sweat lodge. Right. And I'm, I'm a skeptic going in, a healthy skeptic, right? Yeah. Like, hey, whatever, whatever. And um, and my experience in there wasn't unique. There was other 15 other people in this, and they were all having degrees of the same similar experience. Um, and mine was just that much more visceral for me. But uh, then we get done with the lodge, and they explain some things. And the next thing you know, the, the shaman's assistant's talking about the moose and the owl. And I'm like, holy shit. Like, there's so many things in my life over the last two, three months leading up to this with a moose and an owl coming to you in various ways and you don't even realize it it's happening to you unconsciously subconsciously mm -hmm. but then in that in that sweat lodge it all happened 
And then during the cool down, he says, hey, like, just so you know, this is what was going on. Because in between the doors, doors is coming in and out of the sweat lodge five times. And then the last door was to seal up and heal and call in, whatever. And in between the last door and the healing door, he's explaining that he was coughing because he felt this thing in the room. Right, it's pitch black in there. You can't see, right? The glow of the rocks, but um, he felt this thing, and he somebody was releasing it, and it was in the air, and so he grabbed it. And this is what he learned. I mean, he's been doing this for 20, 30 years. This shaman shit. And then what he does is it's inside, and he pulls it in so that it's out of you. Mm-hmm. And then he spits it and burns it up into the fire. And then he's explaining, and I'm just like, holy shit, that is exactly what happened. He wasn't aware of what I was, and I never talked to him about it. He just offered that up, and what an experience, man. I don't know why we're talking about that, but um, that was a big fish event that we did with uh, 15, 16 other veterans, and um, I'm trying to do it for others. I'm trying to create this experience for others, but I'm the one benefiting from it as well. Like, that's okay. Yeah. You know? But I mean, that, that, I mean, you ever do anything like that? Yeah, I talked a little bit about it on our last show, like... Uh, a few years ago, like I, so when I came back from Iraq, um, the Nez Perce Indian tribe actually did a powwow for me. I grew up next to them and, uh, went out with them and there's a, you know, warrior reception ceremony and they, they had a multiple day event and I was, I've been very close to them. Like, hence, like I have a Appaloosa and Nez Perce Indian on like a giant painting on my wall in my kitchen. Like it's, it's very, very close to where I grew up. <clears throat> and, um, no, I'm not like, I'm a healthy skeptic to you, but, uh, there's something about tradition. There's something about like generations of war fighters and people understanding like reception and, mm-hmm. um, you know, the, the psychological and emotional. And then ultimately I think the, the generational component to this uh, has been learned through thousands of years and repetitions and how to heal mm-hmm. that you can't discount. And for me, like, you know, one of the biggest problems I had was, you know, through rep after rep and years of doing what I was doing, I didn't have like emotional capacity. Like I'd, I inadvertently turned myself into a, basically a sociopath. It was like really hard. Like psychologically, it's very difficult. And my first daughter was born. You know, it's supposed to be like the most meaningful moment of your life. And um, couldn't feel anything. Mm. And I was like, well, it's not me. It's not the way I grew up. My, my dad was a very positive influence i grew up in a very loving family and you know i didn't come from like a broken home where people like put cigarettes out of me or anything i just came from a good family it wasn't me what the fuck so part of like coming home for me is i spent a lot of time like i rode a river in the middle of fucking idaho i spent like months on this river salmon right yeah yeah gorgeous yeah and I was looking up in the mountains and I had realized um, it's the first time in my life I'm looking up in these mountains and it's not the first time in my life I could look at it in my adult life and not 
think about where the fuck this is going to kill me. Like I was just looking at, I was like laying in this field, looking up at the mountains going like, wow, that's beautiful. Mm -hmm. And I remember like that point where I was like, this is beautiful. It's amazing. But it was the first time that I'd looked up at the mountains, like just in appreciation and awe and not, not calculating, like, not. not calculating, like where the fuck is, yeah. like where, where is this going to come from? Where is this going to come from? Like what's going on? And it take, it took me months of, of like, isolation no technology of just like fucking pushing a oar in a boat down a river to just get myself out of this and it was like a cycle of things and i still had to work on it quite a bit and i took um i took some psilocybin a few years ago and um it was life it was somewhat life-changing mm -hmm. because I'd realized like through this experience that I'd had I, there, there are all these different things in your life that you just, it, it, 20 years of talk therapy could not have done like one session yeah. and you're like, holy shit. Um, okay. I kind of understand. And I just kind of put the pieces back together. It's like almost within a three and a half hour period. And I was like, fuck. Okay. Well, I, you know, the, the context and understanding to giving myself a little bit of leeway, <laughs> like, you know, having that, that, that experience and being able to go, well, I'm not completely broken because it's, it's a compounding element because you're like, if I'm not feeling anything, something is wrong and there's something wrong with me. And you like, you get into this, like, downward spiral of negativity around yourself versus going, um, I'm all right. Like I'm going to be okay. Mm -hmm. Like, and then I can have the capacity to love and connect in with people and with my wife and my kids and be, a, you know, a good father, a good business leader, just cut myself some slack. And it was, it was a, it was a very life changing moment. And those were like series of events that were like leading up to that, where I would say there's like very spiritual moments that have helped me definitively accelerate like the homecoming and then ultimately being able to reconnect in with with people because mm -hmm. it wasn't wasn't easy like everything was about you know mission everything's about success everything's about accomplishing said goal it's not how do we slow the clock down and really get dexterity with things that are going to provide emotional fulfillment? I don't know. Um, yeah, I've had, I, I've had a, a few of those moments where I'm like, okay. Um, you know, I think my dad, my dad and I have a really good relationship. I spent a lot of time with him today. I just took him to Mexico. I think I was yeah. telling you about yeah. that. And like, you know, he's an old logger, right? It's like, he's, <laughs> he's probably Seems one of the more, times. Yeah, he's he's like a stoic guy. Yeah. Like, you know, my grandfather was in a B twenty four Liberator. He's like one of the most influential people in my life. Like he was probably one of the most emotionally giving people in my life when I was when I was a kid until up until I was you know eighteen when he passed away. So I have really good templates, right? Mm -hmm. I can look at back and say these are people who are really close to me and my family, and they were not fucking assholes. <laughs> like, yeah. <laughs> um, but I think I think that's kind of what, what what you're referencing, where I've had like these very big moments where like oh, 
I'm, I'm going to be okay. Yeah. Like, I'm not totally fucking broken and I can actually start to recover some of my lost self. And when I say that, it's like, when you're a kid, I don't know what your childhood was like. Similar to yours, just good, good, just good, good, solid family, good loving mentors. Had a lot of phenomenal templates. Yeah. But I don't think I was psychologically, emotionally, psychologically, mentally developed enough to recognize that they were the good templates to no. latch onto and read, read the fucking instructions or listen to them, you know, yeah. and it's, and I'm so grateful that at least I have the faculty today to look back and recognize that they were good templates and now spend time trying to read those, those manuscripts and learn from them. I wish it would have been 20 years sooner, yeah. but at least it's not 20 years later. I don't, you know? I, I don't, I don't think we have, like, I think it's part of the process, right? I don't, I don't think we have the, the, like when we're growing and I mean, there are a few people out there that are obviously special and they can have proper context and they can intellectually and emotionally digest these things earlier. But for mm -hmm. most of us, I think we build the scaffolding and then go through the, the phases of this and we have to like deconstruct and rebuild and deconstruct and rebuild. We yeah. have to, like we have to go through those process because there's no fucking way 26 year old Evan would have listened to anything 47 year old Evan would have to say. There's no fucking way yeah. I would have told myself like, shut the fuck up and that doesn't mean that 47 year old evan shouldn't still be telling 26 year old evan the same exact things anyways whether he can listen or not yeah you know there's a great quote out there like be the voice that you needed to hear when you were 18 right i'm ripping that quote it's not perfect but you, you know the yeah, sentiment yeah. of it and we're all on our own different growth timelines everybody everybody and we're all going through our own different growth timelines and uniquely different scenarios it's messy but it's beautiful and that's the, for me, I think that's where the redefined purpose in some of this has been is like, I have to have a purpose, right? I'm, I'm a pre-built and I think that's like something that we all have to have. We have to have purpose. We have to have mission, especially like mm -hmm. people like us that have been indoctrinated over fucking decades of, sh yeah. of things. I think we over-identify with needing it now, right? <laughs> we, we all yeah. need it, but I think people like us, our community, mm -hmm. we start to over-identify to needing it more than we do really do, but we still need it. Would you agree? Yeah, like, yeah. because purpose for me, like in the evolutionary circumstance, that's that's what it is. Like, that's the purpose, which is how do I find out more? How do I continue to to go out and, you know, help, help the community? I, I have quite literally a, a very, very simple um, tree of organization structure and get back, right? It's, it's really easy. It's like, you have to be self-aware, you know, it's, it's, it's one, it's a triage circumstance, which is you have to be mentally and physically capable of providing care to others. So it's self-aid, buddy aid, right? Mm -hmm. And then that triage of care needs to go where I wasn't very good at it for a huge percentage of my life, which was like, take care of yourself so you can take care of others. And then it's like myself, my family, my business, my community, right? So it's like, just keep plugging in and trying to create as much value throughout that chain as I can. And the only way I can do that is like, making sure that I'm very purpose driven in that. And like, and it has to be bigger than me. Like the whole fucking thing, like, like this, this is like, I've said this for a while. Like it ain't about me anymore. Yeah. Right? This is not about me. This is about like, you know, how, you know, can I give to my wife? Can I give to my kids? Can I give to the community? Can I give to the company in the way that's like very beneficial? And, you know, it's like, like the, the community is, 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 is everything. Like I have this incredible desire 
to uh, and from my my priorities of execution, it's like the community is everything. Like it's everything. It's like what I owe my my life. Mm-hmm. What I owe anything that I have is back to the people out that you know, I'm, I'm here because of them. Right. It's like, like I have all my fingers and toes. That's fucking pretty, pretty amazing. So it's like, I got to figure out ways I can give back all the time. Mm-hmm. How do you give back? And it's not just money, right? It's yeah. how do you, how do you have those conversations with, you know, possibly the 18 year old Evan or, you know, that you tosh at 18 years old, how do you have those conversations now and get ahead of it? And then how do you help guys too, that are our age that might be struggling that haven't been able to rebuild the scaffolding as fast or tear it down and reconstruct it. And maybe they've been built to, you know, like I, I spent a lot of time with guys that these, they, they, they spend a lot of time in units where they just get to fucking drink their own piss every day. And they get to talk about how great they are. And then pretty soon they get out they're like, fuck, I'm not so great. Not so great. And like, that's part of like developing a protocol. Like, how do you fucking help? How do you triage? Like, how do you work on your, you know, like time and time's everything we have. Mm-hmm. Like for you, I mean, man, I've had, I've had such a, like, since we first met, like I've had a ton of respect for what you, what you've done because you do it with um, a, a aura of humility and, and quiet professionalism that I think is like, very indicative of good leadership. Thank you. That means a lot. It's it, it's incredible. I mean, it really is. And just hearing like over the last couple hours, like just hearing like how passionate and committed this is. Like this is exactly what I thought it would be, if not way better. <laughs> I appreciate it. Yeah, that means a lot. It's hard. Like I think where I'm growing is like just thinking about what you said, community is everything, community is everything, but but it's also in this this triage piece and very early, same, 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 same process you like whatever whatever the names are, but boom, boom, boom. It's like, hey, I want to pour in and I'm constantly putting my fuel nozzle into that tank. And then struggling with the guilt that uh, I need to put my fuel nozzle in this tank up here. It feels self-serving. But recognizing that that has to have the fuel nozzle in it too, and it doesn't make you bad. The fact that you're having this conversation and it is so hard to put your fuel nozzle into your own tank, that self care, I I fucked that up. I fucked that up until I stopped fucking it up, and I remember when I decided to stop doing that, and I was in the army sergeant major's office at the VA when my world was crumbling. Uh, in the shadow, not realizing in the shadow, you think you're, I'm, I'm handling everything fine. I'm handling everything fine. And you are. The fact that you're having to handle everything that you have going on is actually the problem. You've got all those programs running in the background that are sucking resources from you. And then life is going to throw you something and you don't have mm. the, the computing power to be able to do that. And then things start to crumble. And I'm sitting in this army major's office and I broke down. And that's when I realized like, Hey, uh, I'm not Mr. Invincible. I'm not all of this. I'm not all of that. I'm, I'm, I'm actually, even though I'm trying so, so hard not to believe my own bullshit, suck my own dick, drink my own piss, whatever, like I'm still doing it. I'm just blind to the ways that I'm doing it because I'm paying so much attention to these ways and I'm trying so hard not to do it these ways. But you're, it's, it's that enemy, man. He snuck in 
And if it wasn't for this guy helping me see that, uh, made, a, made decided to make a significant shift, you know? And um, I feel like, I've, I've said this before, I feel like I've killed more people after my service because I couldn't evolve. I'm a better Marine Corps officer today than I ever was because I've made a decision. I've been given the opportunity to see something and then evolve from it. You know, and I think about all these men that have been committing suicide. My radio operator, my fucking buddy here, this guy here, this guy I served with, this guy I never served with, but I know exactly who he is because we've served. Mm-hmm. And I said, well, why didn't you call me? Why didn't you call me? You know, why didn't you reach out for help? Why didn't you do this? this, this? It's like realizing, well, because they didn't want to let you down. Because they didn't want you to think that they were a pussy because you don't need help and you've done these things. I haven't done what you've done and you don't have problems. I'm putting up this, even though I'm struggling with it so inside, keeping it so close, hold so tight. They don't reach out and then they don't do it. And it wasn't until I actually was forced to have my moment that I said, hey, you know what? Like some of the greatest strength is to acknowledge your vulnerability and share the things that you think, even though it's not the macho big guy on this. So this is like, Hey, the world doesn't need another fucking superhero. That's full of shit. They need real honest people to talk about the same things. And then when we can, Oh my God, like I'm just, I'm no different than you. No, of course you're not. Like I'm, I'm wrestling with the same thing you are. Oh my God. I can, now I can come talk to you. I've created a, a, a conduit for conversation and, and then I can use my resources. Um, or I can use my strategies to try to help you and, and we can learn and we can grow together. And ever since I started doing that, uh, I get reached, uh, people reach out to me all the time and I feel like I can help. And then, then, then you're, you're solving one problem just creates another problem. Mm-hmm. Now it's like, Hey, I only have so much time in the day and I don't ever want to tell anybody, no, I don't ever want to answer an email or a text message or a DM or whatever, because it could be the one that needs your response. You could be the thing that just helps them wake up the next day. Right. And that's all it is. It's, it's all it is, is just open up your eyes one more day. You know, just, just get somebody to open up their eyes one more day and we'll solve that's that's tomorrow's problem and it wasn't until i started to get rid of some of that bullshit that i was holding on to just let that go you know and evolve that um but then again now there's my problem is like how do i find ways to turn a 24-hour day into a 25-hour day so i can answer more calls more text messages how can we create a system together through collaboration so that Everybody has somebody that they can just talk to. And you know what? Like, hey, you talk to me and we don't connect. That's okay. Like, I know somebody else. Hey, try that person. They don't know somebody. Hey, try that. But we have this network of people. And eventually, everybody's going to resonate with somebody different. And then collectively, we can start to understand and start to heal more together and, and realize that we're not fucked up. We don't have problems that need to be fixed. What we're experiencing and what we're going through is normal and natural for somebody that's had the experiences that we've had. Mm-hmm. In fact, if you don't have the thoughts and the feelings or the, the things that you have going on for you right now because of those, that's probably the problem. You know what I mean? You, we should be feeling these things. We should be contemplating, you know, morality and and values and ethics and, and, and our experiences. We should be processing. They should have an effect on us. We need to understand what that effect is so that we can better ask the questions and, and how can we grow from them 
you know, instead of say, hey, you know, we got to fix this. We got to fix this. Mm-hmm. Here, take another pill. Hey, have another bottle of whiskey. Hey, fucking go get your adrenaline fix. Because <laughs> that's not, that's not the way, it's not the way to do it. We feel it in here. Yeah, I think my, um, uh, a little over a year ago, like my, one of my best friends, he committed suicide. Um, no signs, you know, former ranger, Neil Curry, you guys know of him. Like, uh, his family, my, my family, like we're all interconnected. No signs. Just gone. It was a wake up. It was a huge wake up call. Like it was, it was a giant, like atomic bomb that went off in my, in, in, in our lives. Right. But it was also a huge wake-up call because I started looking around, really doing a lot of introspective work, and a lot of a, a lot of it. To your point, is like, you know, alcoholism within the community is like rampant, and you know, I, I, I stopped drinking. Part of it was was like you got to lead by example. Like I can't, I don't drink in social circumstances. I don't have a problem with it, but it's like, you know, if other people see that I don't drink, if other people know that I don't drink, maybe they won't. It makes it okay not to. Makes it okay not to. Yeah, I can make a social circumstance where it's okay not to have a drink, and it, it it's fine. Mm-hmm. Like I'm, I I I'm knowingly stopping something that I also don't have a problem with, knowing that the community does, and that if they can just provide them a little bit of clarity in circumstances where they're like, Oh, well, you know what? I don't see him doing it or, uh, he's talked about it. I don't need to. Mm-hmm. And maybe that keeps it out of the hands of somebody that's like going to provide, that's going to provide them the fuel. that's going to push them over the edge in, in any circumstance. So I think for me, it, it, that was just a tiny change. It was just like a little thing in my life that I could change that was not, not a big, it was not an impact at all. Like it literally was nothing but a positive impact in my life. And um, it's also given me like the ability to continue to go back to the community and go like, you don't have to. Mm-hmm. Like you don't have to turn to that. You don't have to turn to a pill. You don't have to turn to a bottle. You can just, you know, turn to other things, right? Like, hey, you know, I don't know, man, like jujitsu or fucking running or whatever. Whatever, whatever like, it is. Yeah. It doesn't matter, yeah. man. Like turn to something else yeah. because you don't have to conform to whatever everyone else is doing. And, and within the communities we come from, it's so socially acceptable and encouraged to be a fucking hard ass. That's just like, that was like the badge of courage or yeah. honor, right? Like, yeah, that guy can fucking drink like a fish or whatever. And it's taken like, to the, anything, whether yeah. it's good or bad, like taken to the extreme is the opposite of, of the initiation, right? Yeah. You said something about never saw it coming. How many how many guys do you know that committed suicide that you saw it coming? You there are a couple where I can identify like oh, okay like because you could you can yeah. see the accelerated behavior and then you can also see it. Yeah. Like, but usually when you start to see it, you inject and you start to try to influence against it. Yeah. Right. And that's the process, and that's the way the system's designed, and that's and it's doing well with that, right? Right now, I get these phone calls that so-and-so, so-and-so committed suicide, never saw it coming, never saw it coming, never saw it coming. Holy fuck, great job, gorgeous wife, beautiful truck, hunts all the time, always happy, 
million followers on social media, whatever it is, right? right. Like they got all the, everything going for them. The fact that there are no signs, that's the actual sign. Mm. They're actually communicating a sign, but we're not using the right lens to look. And so I'm really spending a lot of time focusing on, hey, you know what? I don't need to see the signs anymore in order to take action because I know that these things, if we're doing these things, whether I see the sign or not, or whether the sign's visible or not on the spectrum that we're looking, doesn't matter because we're doing these things that we know will fight against it. Right. And so I don't, I don't search for people with signs anymore. I try to create situations, experiences that deliver the things that I know that are very proactive against fighting it. Because the reality is no matter how high functioning you look, right? No how successful you look, there's something going on in there. And I know mm-hmm. because I have it too. And I'm not trying to solve the equation by trying to find what the variable is. I'm saying, well, these are the contributors to fight the variable. I don't care what variable you have. Right. You know? And um, I look at it as, you know, you know, in the military, uh, did we ever wait for the Humvee to break down before we took it to the fucking motor T? No, we knew that after ever so many miles, it went in and it got PM'd. And after so many uses, we always did our preventative maintenance cycle here, 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 here. We had our scheduled maintenances. So the vehicle would never break down. And I use this analogy where I think there are so many veterans that are driving around our bodies, our vehicle, right? We're the vehicle. Our check engine light is on, but we don't see it. It's right there in front of us. Our check engine light's on, but we can't see it. And we all know, even if you can see it, you can still drive another 50,000 miles on your truck with a check engine light on. It's when it starts blinking that it's imminent, right? It's when the check engine light starts blinking that now I have a problem. In a lot of the space of helping veterans that, that I'm in focuses on a veteran that recognizes that the check engine light's on or a loved one recognizes the check engine light's on or blinking. But the reality is I can be so much more efficient and effective at preventative maintenance that the check engine light doesn't come on. I just need to take you in for an oil change. I need to rotate right. your tires. I need to whatever, flush the radiator. I don't, I don't care what it is. I need to put snow tires on because winter's coming, right? Whatever it is. Like, so I'm, I'm trying to do something with our foundation and find other organizations or other interests, people that think this way. Let's focus our energy, time, money, resources on the preventative maintenance cycle. Because right now, Evan doesn't look suicidal. He's got no signs. But you know what? Maybe I don't, maybe I don't have the right lens I'm looking through. I'm not looking at them through the respect spectrum. I know Evan's got experiences and I have them and I can relate. I can empathize. I can sort of infer. So let's spend time in the preventive maintenance cycle. Let's just, let's just get Evan out to a hunting trip. Let's just get Evan out fishing. Let's just, let's just have a campfire and, and, you know, talk about some things and listen to some music and play fucking cornhole, like whatever it is, because that's the PM cycle. And uh, there's plenty of great organizations that are well-funded that are taking care of the veterans whose check engine lights blinking. They're acute right? They're right at the event horizon. Uh, let them do that work. We don't need another organization to, to, to be redundant in that space. We need to, we need to collaborate in this, this gap over here. And that's all war fighting, man. That's all Sun Tzu. Yeah, yeah. Surfaces and gaps, maneuver warfare. And I'm just trying to apply it. I'm trying to evolve my military career into what's relevant and important today. What's the, you know? uh, so when you look at your your mission statement, 
for big fish? Like wh where's that gap and how are you clear? Are you, have you clearly defined your mission statement as to what, what, it, what its destiny is? Yeah, we're trying, we're empowering veterans to thrive, to thrive post-military service through connection, growth and service. Mm -hmm. Right, we're trying to the, the three pillars. Connection is to create opportunities for us to connect mm -hmm. authentically, absent the bullshit, absent whatever. Just let's just connect. Let's find what you like, what I like, what our experiences are. Let's create a, a path of mutual support, brotherhood. Right, and then once we do that, let's let's invite some different ways to grow, spiritually, mentally, emotionally, intellectually, whatever those things are. Right, and let's grow. Let's ch do it through challenge, right? That's where growth occurs. The obstacles the way, right? The Stoics. Yeah. Um, let's let's challenge each other, challenge each other's paradigms, challenge each other's way of thinking, challenge each other physically, right? Let's have the spirit of debate in what it's supposed to be—not confrontation, but exploration—to grow. And then once we once we do those, let's let's put you in positions to serve again it's not military service. It's serving humanity, serving each other. I don't care if it's mow your neighbor's lawn. Mm -hmm. I don't care if it's call me on my birthday. I don't care what it is, but let's start serving each other because through that is this sense of purpose, you know? And so we, we, we empower veterans to thrive post military service by connection, growth and civic, civic service, you know, or citizen service. Right. And but, is that like, are most of the donations, are they individual donors that come in and donate or do you work with like other organizations from the donation perspective? We're going through a, 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 a transition period. So uh, in the beginning for the first, we're on our fifth year now. Mm. The first three years was largely a passion project of mine. Starting the Big Fish Foundation is a, is a passion project to help. And then um, we've recognized that, okay, hey, we have a body of work behind us now, proof of concept. We're, we're studying it. It's growing. There's a need for it. We've, we've kind of narrowed down who we are, what we want to be, how we're doing it, what works, doesn't work. And in order for us to take the next step in terms of professional, making it more professional, more, more um, effective, we need to start looking at this as a small business. We talked about a little bit earlier. We need to start inviting some pros at running businesses so that we can enhance our means of delivery, right? Um, so up to this point, we've largely been just my social network and mm -hmm. social network of a few people and um, collecting individual donations. Uh, we're gonna we're gonna try to start now. We've re recognized this in the last twelve months. We need to pivot, and we need to start looking at strategic sponsors and, and corporate partners, foundation money, so that we can have some sort of reliable income because the individual donations, you, you can't really budget for them. Mm -hmm. some, and they're starting to dry up a little bit because of economy, because yep. of times. And so we're, we're trying to align ourselves with some, some bigger names that have the ability to give a little bit of money. Um, the, our average donation is $225 per right. person, right? Across 800 um, individual unique donors over the last three, four years. And we're not asking for millions of dollars. It's just like, Hey, can we find somebody that can give us $20,000 a year for three years? Right. And what I can do with $60,000 over three years, you know, um, is huge. And by having that as a reliable, dependable 
for three or five years allows us to build out some more programs. Right. You know, we've been operating at 96 cents on a dollar. 96 cents of every dollar donated goes directly into a program or something that supports a program for a veteran. And anytime you're operating that lean, you know other things are not happening, right? And it's like, hey, but that was a that was a, a something a target I wanted to hit because there's a, a there's something very authentic and genuine. You know, like when we can show the money and be very very transparent. And it's like, hey, this is this isn't supporting five guys getting on a plane to go to Bermuda to have a board meeting or right. whatever the bullshit is, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Operating super lean, um, but in operating super lean, you know that there's opportunity gain that's not being realized. So we need to reallocate a little bit of money and spend some more money on some, some donor relations and cultivating um, donor relationships and, and looking how to do some grant writing and hiring some professionals to, to cross some T's, dot some I's in the governance aspect and, and leverage, you know, entrepreneurship and best business practices in order to, to grow a little bit and just make this next incremental step. So um, we're going to be looking for, you know, Rogue Fitness has been a huge, huge supporter of us since the beginning. It was actually Bill that talked me into starting the nonprofit because I was basically right. funding it out of my own personal pocket, my own business for, for about a year and a half, and it's not sustainable. And he said, hey, you know, like what you're doing is so good, like it's got to be sustainable. We need, to, we need to start a nonprofit so that you can continue this because you're not going to be able to do it forever. Bill's the founder of Rogue Fitness, yeah, by the way. phenomenal, yeah. phenomenal guy. And, you know, um, Black Rifle helped us with with our role across the Atlantic Ocean. And, and the Big Fish Foundation was a nonprofit partner for that. And by rowing and being able to get the Big Fish Foundation flag out there, more people became aware, right? Like if, if it wasn't for Black Rifle's support, XIT Ranch's support, Rogue's support, we wouldn't have been able to do the row and make more people aware, you know, be able to message a greater audience about what we're doing. And it's like, all we need to do is just message. Right. And if that message resonates with you, good. If it doesn't resonate with you, that's okay too, you know, but if we're not messaging correctly, people don't know and you can't hold them, you can't hold them accountable or you can't hold it against them for not inviting themselves to be on your team if they don't even know that you have a team to be on. So um, in the beginning, we've been focused on building the best team possible. And now we're transitioning to message like, hey, we have a team. And this team is doing these things and having these results. So um, I never wanted to be, I never thought, 21 years in the Marine Corps, pulling triggers, you know, leading people. Who would have thought I'd be running a, running a business, running a nonprofit? Like I never, you know, scripted that. But here I am. I mean, you, I remember your story, you talking about your story when we first met, like, I just loved coffee. Yeah. I got out of the agency and I didn't know what I was doing. I just loved coffee. So I started making coffee in my garage. <laughs> it yeah. found you. Yeah, yeah. You know, and look what you're doing with it. Look what look what Black Rifle is and stands for and who it's serving. Um, huge veteran employer um, in the space, philanthropic across so many veteran organizations. And it's just really cool. Who'd, who'd have thought? Who'd have scripted it? You know? I, I couldn't have. Like, I couldn't yeah. have predicted it. I think... You know, and that's that's uh, this this entire conversation is good, and and I mean it's it's been fucking awesome. I think, you know, the other thing was like, you know, where can people go to donate? Because I think that's important. Is it what's the website? Where can they go to donate? Mm -hmm. We've got um, bigfishfoundation.org mm -hmm. is our website. We're getting ready to launch our new website mm -hmm. next week. Um, we've re repolished it, um, offering a lot more 
Um, so bigfishfoundation.org is where okay. you find out more about that. And then um, bigfish underscore foundation on the Instagrams Okay, is, is largely how we're doing our communication right now. Um, we'll go out, uh, support Tosh. Thank you, man. Uh, really appreciate it. Bro. Thank you, man. Yeah. Uh, come back anytime. You're yeah. welcome here anytime. Open door policy, brother. Appreciate, appreciate it. it. Yeah. Bless you, man. Thank, Thank you. you.